everyone welcome back to the, to the director video connoisseur podcast as always this is matt here and i am joined once again by scott murphy from the all 90s action all the time podcast and the new horror express podcast welcome back scott well thanks for having me back good good to be back <laughs> yeah i think this might have been the cleanest opening i've done in a long time usually i'm like fumbling over like how i'm going to introduce the other person so i feel, feel a little bit confident i did a good job this time for once so yeah <laughs> Seemed very smooth to me, so yeah, good yeah, job. Yeah, <laughs> I, I planned it out a bit more. Yeah, and, and speaking of openings, the last time you were on, um, I think we were trying to do the math out. We think we recorded it maybe in like mid-November when the World Cup had just started. It was the group stages of the World Cup, and we were talking about the World Cup at that time and sort of like, you know, talking about how we thought it might go, who might win, you know, what, you know, if Argentina won, I might get a special hamburger at the, uh, the Hard Rock Cafe here, all that kind of stuff. The episode didn't post until well after the World Cup had happened. And so um, it was it was kind of a funny conversation to, you know, I guess we, we, that kind of sometimes happens with podcasting that you re record it well in advance. And then what happens comes much, you know, the episode airs after whatever happened already happened. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the problem of talking about any contemporary news uh, when when you are recording a podcast because it's a, you know it's the same with my podcast. Many of my podcasts are um, done well in advance of when they're actually posted. Sometimes uh, a month or two uh, in advance, and and sometimes we might mention something that's currently in the news or whatever. And uh, yeah, it's well out of date, and people will be like, "Oh yeah, that thing happened." So I yeah, I was quite amused when then. The episode came out, and um, I'm sure a few of your listeners might have been quite confused. Maybe they thought they'd accidentally tuned into Guardian Football Weekly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah, it's one of those things. I always, you know, because I'm not really great with the editing of the podcast process. Like, I can, I will edit things sometimes. Like, if like for example, if somebody like you know has a has a coughing fit or something like that, I might you know get edit that piece out there or something. You know. Um, it usually, because you know, usually uh, the guests that I have on, uh, knock on wood, I, we usually don't say anything that's like so inflammatory that's like, oh, we better cut that out. You know, like that, that's that might not be good for the podcast. Um, so, yeah, so I'm usually only editing like maybe like if there's like a silence or like I'll kind of maybe smooth out the sound. Like if maybe like in the past when I before I was using the microphone I'm using now, my audio was always a lot lower than, than the guest's audio. And so I would try to, to edit that out. But in terms of like taking anything, any of the pieces out, I, yeah, I usually just kind of keep it. I know like um, John Cross from After We've Diner, he's been on and we've talked about things like the night buses in London and the equivalent here in Philadelphia and how you're kind of taking your life into your own hands when you ride one of those at two or three in the morning. Um, and yeah, it just, just sort of stays in. So I, I, I probably have to get to the habit of doing the timestamps that people do in the descriptions so that someone will know like, yeah, the, the actual movie conversation is going to start at this point. But again, I'm still kind of new to this. I'm still kind of raw with the podcasting thing and I just kind of just just sort of put it out there and there you go there's there's the episode well yeah I mean like I'm not uh, an editing expert uh, myself uh, so like um, yeah I can't, I can't say anything that way I, and again I'm quite a light editor uh, I don't edit out as much as many other people that I know edit out and um, I particularly when I'm doing the New Horror Express mainly I'm just looking a little bit for kind of my ums and ahs. I tend to um and ah a bit and, and maybe repeat myself 
Elizabeth. So I try and edit that out. And uh, if if the, the guest is doing uh, the same thing, I might edit that out as well. But other than that, I'm not doing a lot of skillful editing things uh, that I, I know that a lot of my podcasting contemporaries uh, do. Uh, so so I, I'm kind of on, on a similar similar wave on a similar boat. And I don't mind uh, kind of wacky tangents. I think both my podcasts, All 90s Action All the Time and, and New Horror Express, are known uh, for, for some of the wacky tangents that, that they go on uh but we you know we do talk about the subject as well so like um i'm today i don't want to shit on my podcast too much because you know if you because <laughs> i i still think they're 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 good they're good there might not be the best podcast in the world uh but i still think they're solid and um you know if anybody's listening to this wants to check them out I'd be happy for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Because I, I like as myself having been a guest and, and listened to other episodes, I, I could definitely attest to that. Uh, for all nineties action and for New Horror Express, and yeah, I think it's the the tangents. I think they they they're kind of make kind of what makes the podcast medium fun. I think you know if you're on an actual show, right? You've got these beats you've got to hit because commercials come in and you know, all of those kinds of things, whereas like a podcast, you can sort of get out there and let it flow a little bit. And so that is that is part of the fun of it, for sure. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I definitely I definitely think it's good that uh, I, I'm not at the state. I don't have the downloads. I don't have the kind of uh, prestige uh, that I can attract advertisers or anything like that. So I'm not I don't have to kind of uh, um, uh, uh, report to anybody that's that's what I was trying to say <laughs> yeah no, and I always joke about that that like yeah if I get if I get paid like Joe Rogan or even like a fraction of what Joe Rogan gets paid to do a podcast then maybe right like if podcasting could be you know the full-time thing that's like okay I'm getting my my living is off of podcasting then yeah for sure I'm gonna go out there I'm gonna invest in all the best equipment and do all the you know all of that kind of stuff like you said and um you know that's 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 one thing but I think with with this it still can have like like you said it still has like a good high a quality vibe to it that like you know it like you said it doesn't need to be edited for commercials and those kinds of things but it's still yeah like you said it still sticks to the topic and it's still worth listening to um still a fun listen i, I think you know i think you, all 90s action all the time and new horror express are definitely fun listens and and same with you know i, I hope the same with my podcast as well people seem to enjoy it as well um uh, that yeah even though we don't completely edit everything out um you know we still i mean i i listen to other podcasts that, that do have like you know that are backed by like spotify um there's the ringer um podcast network that's a sports one here in the united states they do very long form conversations. Their episodes are usually two, two plus hours long. And and yeah, they don't really cut anything. They they have commercials, of course, they take breaks and have commercials, but so you know, of course they they're they and they also do the timestamps and they're not very accurate. So uh, I don't feel so bad. You know, if we do a, a 30 minute conversation on on you know the state of football, um and you know, it, I don't feel as bad when I know that some professional ones out there that that's what they do for work have conversations like that and still just leave them in as well. Yeah, because a lot of professional podcasts are still 
relatively rambling. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and kind of the sports ones, Some, I mean, some of them go on for, for ages. <laughs> like, Ariel, Ariel Hawani has a podcast, and often his podcasts are like three hours long. Like, Ariel Hawani is like a, a MMA journalist, I guess. Yeah. Um, in case your listeners don't know. Um, so, yeah, and it, it often, you know, sometimes I listen to, like, kind of part of them or something because, like, I'm an MMA fan, but sometimes they are quite exhausting to get through. <laughs> yeah, and I I think Ariel Hawani, I think his podcast is part of the Ringer Network. If, if it's not, um, no, no, he's on, oh, his is on a draft, it's on DraftKings. So that's not, because Ringer, Ringer is owned by, it's funny, all the podcasts here in the United States, they're either um, sponsored by one of the two main uh, uh, and, and, uh, and FanDuel. So the Ringer one that I listen to, because I've heard Ariel Hawani on there, but yeah, he's on a, um, he's on a different, SB Nation is his, his podcasting network, but yeah, I know what you mean, because I've heard him on some other ones. I, the, the, I know Ariel, because he's been on some of those Ringer ones that I listen to, but also I know that he's kind of a, he's not a controversial one, he's controversial, I think, as far as Dana White goes, I think Dana White's not a big fan of him, but he, he, like you said, he, he definitely has some good information on, on MMA yeah. fighters and, and the oh. MMA scene. Oh yeah, he he definitely does, and and like he's he's controversial to Dana White because like Dana White doesn't like any journalist who does actual journalism, doesn't just <laughs> doesn't just write lovely puff pieces about the UFC. But anyway, right. you said we we don't do controversial topics <laughs> on, right, yes. so like uh, I'll I'll not say anything litigious <laughs> no, about okay. Dana no, White. I, we'll we'll move I, on I think, to to all the yeah. litigious things that we can say about Steven Seagal. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Well, that's a, that's a great segue, actually, the MMA Steven Seagal thing, because he, you know, he was known for, he, he kind of bragged about helping Anderson Silva win a match that, turns out Anderson Silva and his camp said, eh, Seagal maybe didn't have as much to do with it as Seagal thinks he did. Um, but, um, yeah, it's a, one, one of the interesting things, actually, is we transition here. A lot of people have kind of followed a similar track that you have as, as a guest on the podcast, where first episode we do a Dolph podcast and then the second episode we do a Seagal movie and the interesting thing about Seagal is he used to always be like the number two one in terms of moving the needle you know when it came to podcast subjects um for this for the show you know Dolph was always number one Seagal number two lately it seems like Bruce Willis is is starting to kind of surpass Seagal if if we talk about a Bruce Willis movie it seems like that's one that people are always interested in but Seagal has still always been kind of firmly there and you know, when you mentioned wanting to do a Seagal movie, I, I'm always up for it. I'm always always interested in that. But I figure maybe before we started, um, yeah, Scott, maybe if you give us, you know, what, what are your thoughts on kind of Seagal overall? Um, so I feel like the last time I was on this podcast, uh, when you asked me about like my relationship to Dolph, uh, I gave a rather long answer. And I have a kind of rather long answer for this, but I'll try and condense it down as much as possible. So I feel like my kind of fandom of Seagal has gone through several stages. Stage one is when I was a kid. When I was introduced to him, I was about 10 or 11. I thought he was really cool. He looked cool. He did badass moves. He seemed to stick up for the underdog. So I was attracted to that. And also I was a big martial arts uh, movie fan. Uh, so like that was all good. And then kind of stage two, I got into my mid-teens. I learned a bit more about Seagal, the man, and realized he is what, you know, he's up there with uh, Trump and Hulk Hogan as one of history's greatest liars. So my fandom became more ironic. And then I started to notice that like, the kind of absurdities of like Seagal films and like all the kind of Seagal kind of tropes that, that, that happen. And we we'll probably talk a little bit 
uh, a bit about that more when we talk about the movie but also just like all the things he, he just kind of uh, just kind of lies about or exaggerates even even his actual compliments he always exaggerates something on top you know it's just he's kind of he just seemed like a weird guy so like i was like oh this is a kind of uh a, you know absurd and fun and uh, the, I noticed the kind of ridiculousness of them. And then I, I guess I kind of tailed off from Seagal. And there was a period where I just didn't really watch his movies and didn't really think about him unless he like popped up in the news, kind of hanging out with Putin, doing weird dances, <laughs> eating carrots, strange, you know, like those things. Um, <laughs> uh, and then uh, more recently, uh, I did the first season of All 90s Action all the time about Seagal because like I was like you know I really love these movies particularly the likes of Under Siege and Out for Justice and Hard to Kill and and these kind of things that I've watched multiple times over the years and I still really enjoy uh, to this day and so I was like oh we'll do the first season uh, about him because for me like I would say probably my favorite action stars when I was growing up were probably the likes of Arnie and Jackie Chan but like similarly the 90s were really defined by me by like Van Damme and Seagal so I was like oh it makes sense so we'll do that and then I kind of researched more into him and I was aware that he was kind of a jerk and a, and a liar and stuff like that but there's lots of action stars that have problematic elements to them that I'm like well I can still enjoy the films while thinking they're not exactly the best people in the world and it was kind of the same with Seagal then when I was doing the research for the season, I learned about all the kind of sexual harassment and sexual assault claims. And then I was like, oh, God, can I still like go ahead with the season? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm as comfortable with the, with the separation um, as I was. Uh, but then in the end, I did go ahead with the season. I kind of gave a little chat at the start of the season where I was like I know that some people like Seagal's like a no-go now um, and I understand and respect that but we decided to go ahead with a season because while we can say that he's a terrible person um, there's still some enjoyment to have with these films in, in my uh, personal opinion and that was so that's the kind of four stages um, of my relationship with Seagal. And I know that's an incredibly long answer. I tried to get through it as quickly as possible, uh, but that's your answer. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, I don't think it was too long. I, I think it actually mirrors a lot of people's experiences with Seagal because it, it's very interesting kind of, you know, you talk about the, a lot of the problematic aspects. And, you know, for me, like there's certain people that I, like just full disclosure, there have been people who have said to me, like, I don't want to do Seagal. Uh, you know, I don't want to talk about Seagal because of the issues that you brought up. Um, and, I think one of the interesting things is like there are people that I generally stay away from, like Mel Gibson's one I try to avoid. And on my last podcast episode, we were talking about movies that had, um, you know, Kevin Dillon or Johnny Drama in him. One of them was was Mel Gibson. And in that situation, what I decided to do was like bring up what was bad about Mel Gibson and then talk about the film. And so it's like that idea of like everybody talks about whether you can separate the art from the artist. And it's more like not separating, but more like kind of laying them side by side and saying like, you know, we're going to, you know, and part of it with Mel Gibson, right, is the only reason why we're even seeing Mel Gibson in DT films, DTV films is because he's, you know, blatant, anti-Semite, chauvinist, you know, racist, you know, all, all kind of homophobe, all those kind of things. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, another one is Jim Brown. Um, you know, initially I'd kind of like been like, okay, you know, Jim Brown, I liked him as an actor. Um, but I knew there was the domestic violence stuff. And then the, um, the play secrets of the playboy mansion comes out and it turns out he's one of the worst in terms of how the women were treated there. He did some of the worst things and it's like, okay, so now it's kind of one of those things where I'll review his mo you know, movies that he's in and just not really mention him in them and not, you know, go over him, but you know, same idea. Like, how do you, you know, how do you parse that? Seagal, I think, just like you, as you were going through your four stages of fandom with Seagal, I think part of the reason why Seagal is one that it's not that people forgive his his transgressions, but people watch his movies, like you said, almost ironically or even like in this goofy way of like we're not taking the movie seriously. We're not looking at it as like what a great job Seagal is doing in this movie. And I think there's almost a sense of like because we're not watching the movie to celebrate him. That it's it's it it's it's a little bit different than if we were celebrating his career, and I think that's probably why you know like we we know all of those like you said all those problematic things, but it's it's like when we're doing Seagal, it's a little bit better because of that fact that we're not celebrating him. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I think that's true. I think um, I want to agree with you on kind of two separate elements you brought up there. I think it is a about laying it side by side. So. When we were going through the Seagal season, if there was something problematic that came up in that production, then we would then we would mention it in the we would try to mention it in the episode and maybe discuss it a little bit before like really getting into the film or like you know in between us like getting into the film. So it was like, oh, here's this film. You know, we're talking about this film. This is what Seagal did. You know, he you know creepy casting couch behavior with uh, Jenny McCarthy or, you know, whatever it was on any, on any, or, you know, he, you know, he beat up John Luguizamo in this one, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then we discussed like the things that are kind of terrible about it, uh, but also discuss like the things about the film. Now, maybe some of the transitions of that were awkward and I, I don't know how that, is to listen to from from an outside perspective we tried to do it as respectfully as we possibly could to you know the the basically the crimes that you know that were, were um uh, that happened uh, on on set so like uh yeah so hopefully that came across well and the second aspect that you were talking about about you know it seems easier to separate because we're not celebrating them. I think that's true as well, because I still, um, you know, I, I bought when I was doing the Seagal season, I bought the Seagalology book and I hadn't visited a, a lot of his uh, DTV stuff. I basically stopped watching Seagal movies by the time of about belly of the beast. So we're talking like 2003, yeah. And then I didn't really watch any other Seagal movies apart from his appearance in Machete, and I, I watched some episodes of Lawman. That that was kind of it uh, for my Seagal viewing. Um, so basically all my viewing was from the 90s um, uh, and the, the couple of films in the early 2000s. And then after buying the Seagalology book when I was um, doing the season, uh, I watched some of his uh, DTV uh, stuff um, more recently. And um, yeah, I can still kind of watch them and I can still kind of have fun with them. And bec because, yeah, it's like, it's an, it's an ironic fandom. I'm like, I'm like, cause these movies are absurd and he is absurd because no person in human history has taken himself as seriously as Steven Seagal. 
Um, so I can still kind of enjoy them from that way. And if I was celebrating them, I don't know, given the accusations that have been made against them, if I could uh, watch his films. If I, gen- if I was genuinely a fan and I was genuinely celebrating his work. Like, for example, I no longer listen to the music of Marilyn Manson. Now, when I was a teenager, Marilyn Manson was a real idol for me. He's, you know, like for a lot of people who see themselves as kind of misfit teenagers, you know, Marilyn Manson was somebody that a lot of people in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, like myself, you know, I turned 15 in the year 2000, uh, that people like myself who were bullied, who, you know, saw themselves as misfits or freaks or whatever, looked up to Marilyn Manson and enjoyed his music. Now, what has come out about Marilyn Manson in recent years has completely soiled that, and I, I now fuck him. I don't, yeah. I don't want to listen to music. I, I don't want anything to do with them. You know, I yeah. can't. I just can't. Um, and that's because, like, for years I celebrated his music and the man, and you know, it, so I, I think there is. A, a big difference there. It does lead to a big difference. So that the the kind of more ironic fandom. Yeah, that's a great point because I think you know using Marilyn Manson I think is a great example because um was is it the first John Wick movie that uses the Marilyn Manson song? Um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think and I, I so I just full disclosure I, I I tend to be very late when it comes to movies like that and so <laughs> I think it was like the last fall like last actually last like December maybe that I finally watched all three of the John Wick movies and. I think that was the one that had the Marilyn Manson song. And I was kind of like, oh, you know, like, 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 it, it, you know, like it kind of had a kind of a visceral sound to it, you know, again, because I, you know, again, like a lot of the things, I mean, the stuff that came out about him is not, it's, 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 it's really, you know, um, it's, it's some of the worst stuff. And so, um, yeah, oh, it was, yeah. It was, I mean, it's it, really, it's really horrific. The, the, yeah. the, the things that have come out about him are just beyond horrific. Yeah. So yeah, it was. It was a movie called Killing Strangers. That's right. Their song called Killing Strangers with John Wick. And, and it's like one of those things where, you know, um, and granted, the movie came out in, in the mid 2000s. And so at that point, I think a lot of the stuff about Marilyn Manson was was kind of it was there kind of the same way with like Bill Cosby. The stuff was there, but it, or, or, or Woody Allen, the things were there, but they weren't like as known like so firmly as they were as they as they've become to be known and so it, that's the other thing too with the movie like john wick is you kind of just sort of like you know okay that song's there i don't want to you know it's you know i'm hearing manson is giving me that kind of visceral reaction and i'll just kind of ignore it and kind of go on with the movie but like you said there's no way to ironically listen to Mary, marilyn manson right like you can't um you can't listen to a marilyn manson song and be like i'm gonna make fun of the fact that that's not him doing his reverse shot, right? Or that, like, you know, yeah. he's he's got like this goofy hairstyle, or that he's using like a fake Cajun accent when he's talking. Like all of those kinds of things, you can't really enjoy Marilyn Manson that way. You either like the music or you don't. Whereas with the Seagal stuff, like we're gonna get into so many different goofy things that happen in this movie that yeah, it does make it a little bit better. I mean, granted, you know, Seagal's still getting money. I mean, he doesn't get money from from our, us watching it. He already got paid his money for the movie. So I guess there's that part of it too that we don't have to feel so bad. But you know, it's it's the other part of it, right? Is this idea that, you know, on the other hand, right, that the Seagal on the cover does get a certain amount of streams, which that's something I think we'll get into as well. Is 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 sort of the, the law of diminishing returns with him, him, his films and having so many of them out there. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I think that's always going to probably be the case with Seagal, maybe more than any of these problematic figures. Is that I think with the problematic ones like a Mel Gibson, people, you know, either just decide they're going to do that whole idea of I'm going to just watch it and not care about the fact that it's um, 
that, that, that Mel Gibson does all has done all of these things and said all of these things and all of that. Um, and they're just going to watch him in the role and enjoy the role. And, and they're going to parse it that way. With Seagal, you don't really have to do that with these movies because they're so bad. You don't have to to make any kind of compromise, I don't think. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Well, yeah, so I guess maybe I'll do like a quick synopsis. Maybe is that maybe the best thing we'll do. Now, one thing I do want to mention about the title of the film, The Keeper. Um, I don't know if um, in the 90s you had the uh, Foster's Australian lager, um, Australian for beer commercials in the UK. Um, I don't know if we had the same one. I mean, like Foster's is widely available in the UK, but like I, I don't know if we had the same ones. Usually we get different adverts than, than America gets, so I'm not sure. Yeah, so we had these ads where what would happen is like something would – you'd get something on the screen. It essentially would be like what this lingo would mean in Australia. So like for example, there's this there, – mm-hmm. one commercial had um uh, like a, a Australian rules football scrum where at the end of it, some guy is planted headfirst into the ground. So only his feet are kind of appearing above the ground. And on the screen, it said fertilizer, you know? And so it's like, and then it's like, you know, Foster's Australian <laughs> for beer, you know? So that was kind of the the joke is that Foster's is Australian for beer. And then here's these other things that are Australian language. Um, so, yeah, so that was a, an ad campaign that was very popular here in the United States. Everybody got a kick out of it. Um, and then, of course, one of the jokes was a lot of people didn't like Foster's, so they'd be like, Foster's, Australian for piss. You know, that was um, always that <laughs> for people that, didn't, that weren't fans of, of Foster's. Um, but one of the ones that I remember very clearly was um, there's a, a couple on a first date. They're at the bar waiting for their table, and the maitre d' says, okay, your table's ready. They get up to go, um, and the, the man is taking his beer with him, but he's leaving the can behind. So the woman goes, oi, and she takes the can, dumps the very little bit that's left into his glass, and then smashes the can against her head. And uh-huh. and she's like, all right, you ready? And he's like, absolutely. And then on the screen, it goes, keeper. And, and so whenever I see the keeper, I just think of that commercial, keeper, the keeper. So, um, yeah, so that's just a little bit of a joke there about that. So. It's brilliant. Uh, no, I don't remember that being on in the UK when I was growing up. So, like, um, that was maybe just an American thing, but that's quite <laughs> yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah, there, there's kind of a thing in America. I think post Crocodile Dundee, there's sort of that whole like Australian, you know, kind of outback. There's the outback steakhouse chain that we have here in the United States. I don't know if that exists anywhere else either. That's um supposed to be like. Australian, like, I don't know, it's like steak and it's like kind of a lot of surf and turf kind of thing, you know, steak and then, you know, shrimp on the barbie kind of thing. Um, yeah, know, so. we had, we had, um, we had something similar um, that I now can't remember the name of. I think it was called Walkabout. Mm-hmm. I think like that was our kind of like, and it was like a kind of Aussie themes re- restaurant where you could get like crocodile steak and kangaroo <laughs> burger and you know like <laughs> yes, right, right. Know, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what those ads were. Those Foster's ads were playing up on. And so, I mean, it was one of those kind of things that it, in that, that period in the late '90s, early 2000s, like you know, because I was just old enough to drink in the United States around that time, like in the early 2000s. But you know, even like college parties, of course, you know, someone would get you beer. Um, there were always a few people that would have like that big fosters can um and then i I think some people would drink it just because they got a kick out of the commercials and um it it did enough to kind of like build the brand here um but i don't i don't know i I mean i imagine you can still buy fosters here but they don't have the um they don't have those commercials like they used to yeah 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 of course it's funny because it's like one of those things that and i don't know we'll get we will listeners we will get to the film just very very soon (laughs) and we'll make this last point and we'll get right into it um but (laughs) but i think like fosters in australia 
is kind of seen as like a kind of low class beer. Yeah. It's a bit like probably the most famous beer from Scotland is Tenants, and it mm-hmm. is seen as like a scumbag beer. It's like you're, <laughs> you're like you, so you're bottom of the barrel. Look, you know, it's it's on tap everywhere. <laughs> But right. it's seen as a kind of so I don't know what the American equivalent would be like I don't know like Miller's or Budweiser or something. Budweiser probably yeah. <laughs> probably Budweiser yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah and we you know the funny thing about Budweiser when I was in England in '97 um, when we'd go to pubs they would tell us like hey didn't you know that that Budweiser is an English beer and we're like no it's not an English beer it's American and they would show us that it was brewed in London and I think that's because. In in you know in the UK and other parts of the world, you don't brew the beer anywhere else. You just brew it in that one brewery that that, that makes it. Whereas like Budweiser has breweries all over the place, um, and so there was a brewery in London that just brewed Budweiser too. Um, so uh, so that, that was kind of an interesting thing to be like. And and they were yeah. drinking it. Was, it was interesting. Is that the, the the pubs in London in particular? They were drinking Budweiser. Yeah, I mean that's the thing with beer. It's like beers are just always brewed. In the, in the country that they're from it's yeah. like you know sometimes um i would uh, drink uh when i still drank uh cronenberg 1664 which on the yeah. bottle would say you know like francis premium lager and then you'd look right. at the back of the bottle and it'd be like brewed in newcastle and you'd be right. like cool right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. yeah yeah exactly so yeah that's 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 kind of how it is yeah i mean i think probably like the same it is that like everywhere else in the world like there's that that sort of that micro brew um well i guess it, yeah, it, yeah. in america it was a bigger deal to have the micro brew thing because prohibition in the 20s really like knocked out the beer industry for a large extent and so only like the really big ones were able to survive it and then you start to get small ones like like sam adams in the in the 80s and suddenly you know then in the 90s it kind of now we now we have so many selections for beer that you know it is like the budweiser thing is still kind of like this idea of like i'm going to get a six pack of something and that's what i mean or like when people go to football game american football games here in, in in philadelphia they drink bud light on the subway um on the way to the game but you know if there is you know if you're like having if you're, if you're drinking just to get hammered for a game but budweiser is going to do the trick but if you actually want something that tastes good if you're only going to have a, a few bottles then you get something better yeah i mean that's kind of this that's kind of the same back in scotland but with tenants yeah yeah <laughs> that makes sense yeah yeah one quick thing before we get to the movie about tenants lager um my friend had um in, in the early 2000s when we were in college my friend had a uh uh, a, a six pack of tenants lager from 1988 and um i we drank one of them it actually i mean this would have been like they were like 13 years old it wasn't horrible but i tried to sell one on ebay it was the very first thing i tried to sell on ebay and nobody bought it so um yeah nobody wanted a, a can of tenants lager unopened from 1988 so yeah so maybe they knew what i what we didn't know about about its reputation in scotland <laughs> Perfect. Well, well, yeah. So, so onto the keeper. The keeper um, comes out in two thousand and nine, which we will get into because that is an interesting year for the Seagal filmography. But um, the film is essentially um, he plays a character named Roland Salinger. So uh, another one of those great Seagal character names. Um, he is an L.A. cop, and we know he's an L.A. cop not because anything takes place in L.A., but there are plenty of establishing shots. Um, overhead showing us that there we're in la but we really aren't but whatever he's he's an la cop um he has a drug bust um and his his partner gets greedy when he sees the money on the table and when seagal says no we're not going to do that we're not going to take the money the the uh the partner shoots him um he almost dies but he doesn't quite die he's in the hospital there's a confrontation with the um the old partner who tries to finish him off he kills that partner and then 
you know, as he's recovering, the LAPD tells him, you know, we no longer need your services. At the same time, he has an old friend who's played by a poor man's Harry Dean Stanton, who um, needs his help because this poor man's Harry Dean Stanton uh, owns some property that's supposed to be in the San Antonio area. Again, we're told it's San Antonio because of the establishing shots, but it's really not. Um, I think everything's in New Mexico in this film. But um, the uh, the poor man's Harry Dean Stanton um, has land that um, a criminal businessman wants to take from him. And what he wants to do is kidnap the daughter and use the daughter as a means to to uh, extort the the land away from him. Uh, the daughter's played by a woman named Liesl Karstens, who was in uh, Urban Menace. Um, she's younger, but, um, you know, the, the poor man's Harry Dean Stanton calls Seagal, who's just recently retired, and says, hey, you know, if you're not doing anything, do you want to come be a bodyguard and manage security for me so my daughter doesn't get kidnapped? Seagal's all for it. He comes, flies down to what is supposed to be San Antonio, and, um, you know, he's trying to protect the daughter. At the same time, the daughter um, is has a boyfriend who's a, 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 a boxer. Um, we know because this guy um, is sort of your, your average late 2000s jackass kind of character that he's not going to be any good for her. And sure enough, um, he gets into some trouble with um, the, uh, the bad guy businessman, and he kind of gives up the daughter. Um, so the daughter gets kidnapped. Now the daughter's kidnapped. Um, Seagal's got to go around and find where this daughter's being held and take down this bad guy so he can sort of save the day. Um, I think that's pretty much it, right? I don't know if anything else happened in there that I missed or anything, at least in, in the synopsis standpoint. No, not in the synopsis standpoint. That pretty much clears up what happens uh, during the plot. I mean, obviously we'll get into the detail a little bit uh, in a second, but yeah, no, that's, that is the outline. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of weirdly plotted. Um, at the start, we kind of, Look like we're gonna get like something almost similar to the likes of Hard to Kill, uh, where you know where he's in the hospital, he has to recover and get revenge <laughs> and stuff like that. But he gets his revenge. Basically, the the Hard to Kill plot takes up like the first twenty minutes of the movie, and then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we and then we get onto the 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 Man on Fire ripoff plot. Uh, for the rest of the runtime, uh, so like, yeah, it's kind of interestingly structured that way, <laughs> yeah. And one of the things, so I noticed that Seagal was uncredited as a co writer on this, and I'm wondering because so one of the interesting things when you look at this movie on his filmography, I would say this one here in 2009, this might be the last time that anybody in any way, shape, or form gets the drop on Seagal, which again, his partner gets the drop on him because the partner shoots him when Seagal's not expecting him to shoot him, and he gets you know injured that way i think the closest might be an end of a gun jade ewan um spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen that jade ewan kind of turns on him and he kind of finds out that she was using him um but really he doesn't really delve into enough about the fact that jade ewan was using him. that would have also meant the fact that he is kind of an overweight old man that couldn't get a woman like jade you you know the woman like jade ewan wouldn't be interested in at all except to, to use him for for his money and he doesn't want to exactly go that far right he doesn't want to tell anybody that he might not be that attractive. Um, but this, I, I would say, is probably the closest to that. And I think the fact that he has an uncredited writing part is probably tells me that he did more to make it seem like he didn't have, he, he wasn't duped to that degree. Um, I think there's probably other stuff that happens in the movie as we're watching it, right, that Seagal has to be kind of omnipotent in his movies for the most part. And so the fact yeah. that his character isn't fully omnipotent here tells me that the, the main character probably was even less so, and then that Seagal kind of, he probably mitigated more of it so he could be at least a little bit more on the omnipotent side. Yeah, I, I think so. And I do think it's interesting though, because like when I was watching, I've never seen this movie before, 
and I was like, oh, okay, this is this character seems like a very traditional Seagal character. And I've watched a few other movies from this time or know about some other movies of this time. And he seemed to be playing not kind of different characters in the sense that he's always omnipotent. He's always the the, the biggest badass ever. And always people always tell me he's the biggest badass ever. But he did seem to be playing more kind of anti-heroes. Because like, in, yeah. in Urban Justice, he seems like more of a kind of edgy kind of anti-hero type character and then i know i've not seen it but i know in like pistol whipped was which was like 2008 he's like a kind of broken down he's like a gambling addict and he's all like this and then in something else that i watched which i think it's also 2009 uh driven to kill he's like a former russian gangster turned novelist and again he's more of a kind of anti-hero kind of doesn't give a fuck you know whereas he seems more in the kind of traditional Seagal kind of like not only is he the the biggest badass ever but he's like the ultimate white knight he's like you know the most gentlemanly and the most honorable and the most loyal and you know like so he seems more like a kind of 90s character he's playing here than some of the other characters he was playing around this kind of same kind of time yeah, and it's interesting because yeah, Pistol Whipped for me is maybe one of the best or one of my favorite of his DTV ones, especially from this this you know two thousands period. And one interesting thing because you, you're talking about sort of your your progression with him, where you kind of fall off, kind of in the in the the early two thousands, and mm-hmm. the early two thousands is where you start to get the point where he starts making multiple movies a year, and. The line director for this film, Benjamin Sachs, he does a really great interview with um with Sean Malloy of I Must Break This Podcast, and I, I kind of always bring this interview up because I it was it's so insightful and just you know because Benjamin Sachs kind of gives you the real deal. Um, it was you know Sean had him on of course for um for for his Dolph films that he Dolph, he yeah. produced yeah but but it, it turned into a conversation about Seagal because he's you know Lyon produced a lot of these these movies and um one of the things he said is that around this period is when. Seagal starts coming to him constantly, like I need another movie, I need another movie, because he was he was low on money. He needed he needed the cash from them. And you know, Benjamin Sachs was like, you know, we'll we'll do it, we'll try to make another one for you, but it you're 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 diminishing your audience here. It's 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 making it harder for people to keep up with your films and they're not gonna keep watching them at this stage. And 09 is kind of a big year in the sense that I think he does five or he does four movies in 09. And the only other year he did more was 16. He had, uh, I think he had seven movies come out in 2016. And then he kind of falls off. Like after 2016, he only has like, he's only had four movies come out since then. Um, so this is the start of where I think a lot of people, so you're kind of in a similar boat from a lot of people that you start to kind of fade out and, and have trouble keeping up with all these Seagal movies. And the only reason why I've kept up with them, and I still, you know, End of a Gun was one that took a long time for me to catch, but um, the only reason why I even caught up with them was because I had the blog site, and I was, you know, he was, mm-hmm. he was, you know, in the Hall of Fame, and, and we were watching a lot of them. But, but yeah, you get that sense that the law of diminishing returns starts to happen, with, it's starting with, like, movies like this one. Yeah, I, I think so. Like, but, like, having caught up on some of them in recent years... I do think some of them are are quite funny. Like, I, <laughs> you know, in the last couple of years, I, I've watched a number of them. You know, some of them I, I I just mentioned, like Urban Justice, which is actually kind of fun. It's this kind of solid yes. DTV ever, um, and uh, Driven to Kill, which again, solid enough revenge film. You know, a bit still, you know, silly, but like solid enough. But some of them 
are like both terrible, but at the same time, just absurd as genius. So like a couple of years ago, I finally got around to watching Out for a Kill, which oh, yes. is hilarious. <laughs> it has a scene where he fights a guy who's doing lots of wire work in a barbershop chair, which is one of the funniest fights I have ever seen on film. Um, and then, uh, just the last time, after the last time we, we had a conversation, we started talking about what the next movie we might do together was, and we came up with, with this film, I was like, ah, oh, you know, I fancy watching a couple of Seagal movies. So I, I thought, like, I'll watch a, a Waxman collaboration, i watch A Dangerous Man, which yes. was it's kind of, which had some absurdist funny elements in it, you know, but had some kind of solid solid enough kind of elements um as well i say solid because like my kind of scale of what i would rate a dtv film is kind of different from my scale of 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 like i don't want to say a proper film that just sounds really snobby uh yeah. but like um you, you know what i mean like sometimes you'll see a dtv movie or like a dtv action movie that if you saw like uh, a theatrical action movie uh, if it was theatrical, you might rate it two stars, but like, you know, it's kind of three stars for a DTV one, but like two stars for like, you know, a bigger, a bigger one. And I'm not shitting on like independent cinema because like, I think there's a difference between indie cinema, you know, the types of movies that are made by people who want to make them. And then they maybe go on a festival film circuit and then they maybe land on the streaming. There's a difference between that and a DTV film, which is like deliberately made to land, to be made for DVD or to be made for, to land on Tubi or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I like, so there's a differentiation in my mind. So like I, I when I say a proper film, I include like small scale indie films as well. <laughs> yeah. um, um, so I, I really I, like yeah i mean some of your audience probably think oh what an elitist asshole so like yeah anyway um but and, and, like back to back to what i was i was originally planning to say which uh, another one that i thought was just awful but again full of absurdist genius uh was out of reach i like yes. i watched that that was i did a double bill out of reach in a dangerous man and out of reach jesus christ yes. <laughs> that film is so insanely dumb that it just falls into the realm of like actually this is kind of like unintentional brilliance like. <laughs> yeah well i know exactly what you mean and it's interesting because that interview that that sean did with with, with benjamin Sachs, you you actually kind of get a sense of where all this the kind of the absurdist stuff comes from and i think to come to your point about like you know you don't you say like you're, you're i don't i i think there's a sort of understanding when it comes to DTV flicks, right? Is that you know, these are movies that like they got to spit out quickly, right? Like there's there's usually a distributor involved who's like you need to get this thing done in a couple of weeks. But also, um, yeah, it's got you know, like I think um Tom Joliff, uh, who's a screenwriter in, in in England, talks about his movies where like a lot of his movies are are, are filmed in England, but the distributors and in, in, in wanting them to be marketable to Americans want all of the English actors to speak with American accents and they want the movie to take place in America, even though it's so clearly being shot in England and it's like you can't blame the filmmakers for that right like but you no, can still kind of make that's fun true. of it and have a have a go at it but you, you knowing that right it's not the filmmakers fault that the movie's like that that it's the distributor wanting it to be that way 
Yeah, I mean, like that's, I mean, that's absolutely fair, you know, because you know, obviously, there's lots of movies like that, and obviously, like you know, directors just get told things by studios of being like, yeah, can you make Bulgaria look like New York? (laughs) Not really, but we'll try, I guess. (laughs) Right, exactly. And I mean, that's what's happening in this movie. You know, it's like we know nothing takes place in London. We know nothing was shot in Los Angeles. Nothing was shot in San Antonio. And and the other thing too, I think, is with Keone Waxman and again Benjamin Sachs's line producer and and kind of the whole crew that works on a on a on a Seagal movie they know that there's certain things that Seagal it demands right like he never does his ADR shots I mean how many times do we see him like he's supposed to be driving a car but that's so clearly somebody else's back who's driving that car you know that it's not him yeah. or when he was kicking somebody in one of the scenes I think it's an early scene just to give people set the scene for everybody there's a scene where he's in a limo being driven to the the poor man's Harry Dean Stanton's house and in the in the meantime they see um the, the driver's cousin is being attacked by two thugs so Seagal goes to, 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 to handle them. And in one of them, he's kicking the guy like multiple times. And it's so not Seagal kicking that guy, right? It's so it's so definitely somebody else. And so I think that's the thing, right? You can have fun with it and and know that it's Seagal, right? That that's the reason all of this stuff is so goofy. And I I think, like you said, you 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 grade DTV on a curve because of all of the things that they have to work through. And yeah. and in this case, I think in a lot of cases, right, the star and having to mitigate the star's demands is another piece of it that the, the movie just so needs to have this face on the tin to be able to sell streams and rentals and whatnot that they put up with so much that um, you know, I think Benjamin Sachs talked about it, how like these these stars would demand so many things and like one of the things is like with their shooting schedules, um, you know, you have this crew that would have to you would shoot maybe 16 hours a day to, to manage the demands of somebody like a Seagal. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. I think I, we can, you know, it, it, it's, you know, we, we can, um, you know, us making fun of the movie is not like sort of like you said, like it's not shitting on DTV. It's more like you know, you're great on a curve because that movie has different expectations involved. And so, um, yeah, if this was a, a Marvel movie that came out like this, we would definitely be killing it a lot more. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think that's a good differentiation to make that we're, we're grading on a different curve because of the mitigating circumstances. And even like because like. On New Horror Express, I interview a lot of low-budget horror directors, and you know, there's a there's a lot of them who are are making uh, films uh, sometimes on micro budgets. Yeah. Um. So, like, you know, I, for example, interviewed um, a Brazilian director who made a really fun slasher, the kind of fun slasher stroke opera stroke other thing. Like, it's it's a really fun film. It's called Phantom Summer. Um, it's not really available. It's done kind of festival circuit, particularly in South America. Um, but it's done some festivals in Europe and stuff as well. I think he made it for like 20,000, I think roughly $20,000. I tried to make the, I tried to do the calculation. I remember at the time I tried to do the Google calculation because the is listed in Brazilian real, the budget. Right. right. And obviously but even though he had mitigating circumstances in terms of like he just had like an extremely low budget, um, you can tell that he's you know he's got the cast he, he wanted and from you know that he can get, and he's you know he's he's managed to kind of work within the restraints of of the budget, but he's not working, but he's still making the movie he wants to make. Yeah. Um, so I would even that I grade on a different curve to like this kind of DTV action because 
it's like the mitigating circumstances are not just kind of budgetary. You've got all these studio restrictions and you've got all these kind of weird things where these films are being sold in international sales on the back of a name, whether that's Dolph Lundgren or it's Bruce Willis or it's uh, Steven Seagal or whoever it is. And then often, like you've said, they are only on their project. I mean, it's you know, obviously here he's kind of like a main leading role, so he's he's on it more. But often it's like he's there, you know, for a few days. You know, say the shoot is like three weeks long. He's there for like three days, and they've got to they you know they get their ten fifteen minutes of footage out of him, and then they kind of splice it throughout throughout the movie. So it's kind of they're structured in a different way. They're not backed on the vision of a writer or a director or you know whatever they're kind of just kind of like oh we just got to make the pieces fit together and then so yeah you give them you give them extra latitude for that because you're like yeah if this was a film that was released in theaters or you know you thought was a film that didn't have these kind of studio restrictions you'd be like yeah this isn't good (laughs) <laughs> but you like, but, and you you know like even here you still say I mean, it isn't good, but like, but you can you can you you, know, you definitely for, forgive it more. And while my previous point might have sounded kind of elitist, there I will go to bat for a lot of DTV films. You know, like you know some people will just be like, oh, I would never watch DTV action, and you know it's just all it's all shit. You know, it's all like a, a wasteland. And I'd be like, actually, no. You know, have you ever seen Blood and Bone? Have you ever seen yeah. Avengement? You know, like I, you know, so I'm not like just somebody who's come to shit on DTV action. <laughs> <laughs> Right. No. Yeah. No. I, I think it's a it's a great point because I think yeah. And even if we do make fun of sometimes like like you know we always talk about like we we, we kind of you know joke with these movies with with love in mind. You know like we're we're kind of kidding yeah. with them. You know with love. And I, I think you you made a great distinction the last time you were on um, when we were doing the Dolph one. Um, kind of you know with the difference between horror and action is that. A lot of times with horror, like you said, it's somebody who's developed this project and is working on it. And yes, they have a micro budget, but it's something that they want to do. Whereas I think in a situation like The Keeper, it's a situation where Seagal comes to Benjamin Sachs's people or whatever and says, we need to make the movie. Or the distributors come to him and say, OK, how much do you think you can make this movie for? And he actually said this about, you know, just sort of in general how it works that like he'll say, yeah, I think I can make the movie for five million. They say, great, make it for three. And and so then it's like, OK, that's that's what I've got to do. I got to make it, you know. And then um, you, you get a director like a Keone Waxman who knows what the score is, right? He knows yeah. what it means to be working with Seagal. He knows what it means to be working on a project like this. So he's not going into it being like, boy, this is really like something that I'm artistically invested in in that sense. I mean, yes, from a professional standpoint, he wants to be artistically invested as a director to like do a good job. But this isn't like Martin Scorsese saying like, boy, I really want to do, you know, The Irishman and I want to, you know, make this film work. And all the actors involved are thinking the same thing. It's like, Okay, we need to create this Seagal vehicle. This is these are the pieces that we need to do to make it. Let's let's put all these pieces together. And and then it's like, yeah, in the end is it's kind of that idea is like, okay, is this something that's fun to watch? Um, yes or no? And sometimes it isn't fun to watch, right? Sometimes it doesn't work, but it's like, yeah, it it doesn't work because like we talk about with these mitigating circumstances like Seagal, you know, it's like, you know, 
the the scene where he's kicking the guy, um, and it's so not him kicking the guy. It's kind of almost like with the Irishman when um, when Robert De Niro is kicking that guy, and it looks so silly because he's like older, and it's not you know it's not working. It's yeah. you know in, in this case it's because Seagal's ref- you can't do the kicks and he's not going to, but they want to put them in somehow, and. The movie itself is just kind of doing the best it can with that, but it's still kind of funny for us to watch and for us to joke about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think yeah, I think horror and action are kind of are kind of different because like I, I feel like when it comes to the kind of indie budgets and stuff like that, uh, and the kind of DTV stuff, it does seem that the action, a lot of the market, is based on getting a star name and getting kind of international sales. So it is kind of there it is kind of more cynically made whereas i do think that horror is more of a mixture yes there is lots of cynically made horror um you know you you got like you know full moon pictures is just a factory just pumping out movies um you know like there's lots of of films that are like uh that just is like vaguely haunted house and then they'll just they'll just slam an Amityville on the title, you know, for no reason. Um, you know, there's lots of people out there who have written scripts and, you know, gone to a studio and been like, oh, the studio said this is a good script. Uh, but yeah, we're planning on making a Hellraiser sequel. Are we? I like, uh, you know, like, so there's lots of like cynical stuff in horror too, but there's more of that mix as well. It's like, there's like an indie horror sphere as well, where people are, who genuinely love horror going out there and, and making horror. And I guess, like the difference is you can make horror on the lower budget. And I guess the, the also the difference is um, horror fans, while there is certain horror icons like Bruce Campbell or Barbara Crampton or Linnea Quigley or, you know, whoever, horror fans are more attracted to concepts yeah. than they necessarily are to stars. So you can have a complete, in a horror film, I think the way they get away with it more is you can have a complete no-name cast. But if you've got a cool hook to your movie, horror fans will be going like, oh, well, I've never seen that before. Let's check that out. (laughs) Whereas I think action fans are generally more attracted to stars or like, you know, a name that they know, a name, you know, you know, at whatever level, whether that's like, you know, somebody who was one of the biggest stars in the world, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger, or even somebody who's just like a kind of, you know, just a big deal in the DTV market, like, uh, I don't know, like a Gary Daniels or, or something like that, you know, whatever, like people are more, will more kind of go towards like having like an actor that they know in, in the action genre. It, well, that's certainly, that seems what it's like from, from the way I see it. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I, I think I, I agree. I think it's definitely the case because one of the big things with the site that I noticed in terms of like, you know, and again, I don't, and it's not saying it's all about like, you know, podcast downloads, or it's all about, you know, site views or that kind of thing. But there is definitely like a kind of a hierarchy with the names where like, you know, Dolph Lundgren, again, is one who really moves the needle, you know, um, Bruce Willis is one. And I think Bruce Willis is an interesting one, because I was in this mindset of like, I'm not going to really do any more Bruce Willis, because, you know, he's even, you know, we we found out, of course, that he had health concerns. And that's why, um, you know, he was so scant in his films. But it was like, you know, you watch a movie where you watch the trailer and think like, okay, Bruce Willis is, is starring in this movie. And then you watch it, and he's out of it for huge chunks of time. And it's like, why am I watching this for these other people in the movie? Like this, this movie's not doing anything. And, and usually in those cases, the plots were really difficult and there, you know, there were a lot of other things that were going on with them. Um, but then, you know, I kind of found this resurgence with these Bruce Willis movies because I did a solo podcast episode where I just 
talked about a few episodes and then Ty from Comeuppance was like, hey, I'd actually like to be on your podcast, you know, because usually him and his brother together will come on and we'll do like we would do like these list um, episodes. He's like, I kind of like that format. I'd like to come on and do a, do some of those movies with you. And we've been doing them. And again, they, they, they it's it, it's that idea. And I think you're right that like there's almost like a siren song with these names um, for, for action fans. And, and, you know, you see that name, and you're like, oh, I got to check that out. And and I'm as guilty of it as anybody. And I think with horror, you're absolutely correct, where you know, almost a lot of times horror is, is the, the horror genre actually builds the name as, as opposed to the other way around, like actors who were in a movie that ends up taking off. They become famous enough that they can be in other films. Um, you know, one name I think it was Daniel Harris, who was in you know the Halloween movies, is now has has parts in all kinds of low budget horror films um, because people just recognize her and see her and that kind of thing. But you're right, like you horror films, like you said, if if the concept's good and the word of mouth is there too, that's the other thing too with horror is um, I. I think a movie like Avengement maybe um, or, or like, like Blood and Bone, but they don't quite have that kind of word of mouth um, ecosystem that, that that horror films do. No, I think that's also to do with the fact that like horror is kind of on its own when it comes to like having its own ecosystem. I don't I can't think of any other genre who ha that has its own ecosystem in the same way. So like action films don't have the same film festivals that horror does. Right. There's lots of horror film festivals all over the world. I, I've, you know, I knew about a bunch of them uh, before I started the podcast five years ago. I now know about a lot more of them. So, like, it has its own ecosystem. And even, like, there's a lot of horror fans who won't read, like, mainstream reviews. They just read horror. They just read horror sites, like the big horror sites, like Rue Morgue, and Fangoria and uh, Bloody Disgusting and Dread Central and these kind of things. And then Joe Blow has one that's called Arrow in the Head. You know, so like it even has like its own review ecosystem as well. So like it has an entire infrastructure that is kind of separate from the rest of movies. Uh, so like, yeah, and, and action just doesn't have that. And, you know, I mean, it'd be cool if action had that too. And like, um, you know, action had the, the, the bigger side. I, I'd love if, um, you know, the likes of Blood and Bowen and likes of Avengement, like got bigger uh, word of mouth. And, you know, because I, you know, will uh, go to bat for them just like my kind of, you know, indie horror favorites too. Uh, so, so, yeah, but it, it just doesn't, doesn't seem a... Uh, work out like that <laughs> yeah well you know and i think <laughs> talking about blood and bone I mean, the great point you make too out of blood and bone like i think a michael j white is is a great example too of like the difference between the horror ecosystem and the action ecosystem is that you know a michael j white has the talent to be bigger right he should be a, a bigger name and be doing bigger things i mean if we put yep. michael j white in this movie the keeper it would have probably been a really electric action thriller um, as opposed to this kind of goofy Seagal thing that we, you know, we're kind of lampooning. And, but the mindset is, well, we, we're, there's no way the international market's going to go for Michael J. White the way they go for Seagal. But I mean, you think blood and bones, one example, um, black dynamites, another great one he did. Um, yeah. It was, he's got these really great films, but you're right. Like the word of mouth on those is not the way like the horror, you know, if he did a horror, like, you know, if if he was a horror star like a Daniel Harris, as just that's just the name that comes to mind. But even like a Tony Todd from from Candyman, you know, um, yeah. you know, like like horror. You know, he he can just get into horror movies. He he can also do the the horror festival circuit in a way that someone like a Michael J. White can't. I think you know, like Dolph does sci-fi circuits, um, which are kind of 
not quite to the same, um, you know, uh, size as horror, but still kind of a big, you know, that's a, that's a big um, arc. Or, or, you know, they can do comic book ones now, right? Like, like now that Dolph Lundgren said, you know, he did Punisher. Um, and I guess, I guess Michael J. White could do comic book ones because he was in, um, he was in, in Spawn. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, it, it's an interesting thing with, with, with that, uh, with those guys, like, like how that, that ecosystem works and, and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, so we're going to take a quick break here. So we'll, we'll stop here, but then we'll, we'll come back and we'll kind of finish up talking on the keeper. All right. See you in a second, everyone. Hey, everyone. We'll get back to the podcast in a second. But first, I have a new novel out, Holtman Arms. It follows Colvin Hall, an aspiring writer who decides to write a romance novel on a whim, sends it to a publisher, and it becomes a huge success. The only problem is, no one knows it's him because he writes under the pen name Mary Ballantyne. With all of the money and none of the fame, Colvin longs for the world to recognize his accomplishments. When he gets an opportunity to write a freelance article on a washed-up 90s pop star looking for a comeback, that recognition starts to come, but is it all he hoped for? It doesn't matter because he's getting it whether he likes it or not. Holtman Arms is the second in my author's cycle after A Girl and a Gun, and like that previous novel, it explores themes of success and accomplishment in the 21st century. You can buy it now through Amazon in paperback or on Kindle. The link is in the podcast description. As always, thanks for your support. All right, we are back. And um, yeah, kind of getting back into The Keeper. Um, one of the interesting things about this that I was going to mention is we have a poor man, Terry Dean Stanton, who plays. And I don't know if you if you thought of him that way. If I, maybe I'm just I'm just the one thinking that he was kind of Harry Dean kinda, Stanton. I, I guess now you mention it, I guess he is kind of uh, Harry Dean Stanton. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I, I, I don't know if I've seen him in anything. I know the actor's name is Steph Duval. And, not sure if I've seen them in other things, but yes, I can I can see it now. I can see that um, Harry Dean Stanton didn't come to mind, um, but I can see it now. Of course, uh, Seagal starred opposite Harry Dean Stanton in Fire Down Below. Right, um, right, exactly. That's a, that's a good point. And so, yeah, so he's 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 worked with it before. Yeah, it, it was like the the character. It's you know because uh, uh, Roger Ebert had what he called the um, the Stanton. Walsh rule, right? That that uh, any movie that had either Harry Dean Stanton or M.M. at Walsh had to be good. Um, and he, I guess he 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 said that the the exception of that rule ended up being Dream a Little Dream with uh with with um Harry Dean Stanton, which I don't know. I I kind of wonder if he ever. I if, presume if, he wasn't a fan of Fire Down Below either, to be honest. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, that I wonder if he was alive long enough what he would have thought of Scorpion King Four with M.M. at Walsh in it. So um, yeah, he no, probably sure. yeah, he wouldn't have been a fan of that. But <laughs> I think. With this movie, I think the rule, the, the 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 Ebert rule, that whenever you have a poor man's Harry Dean Stanton, the movie's probably not going to work. And uh, yeah, I, I this movie, like you said, it's it's I think for um like it's a it's a ninety minute actioner. It does have its low moments. I think that's the one thing is that it's for for ninety minutes. I think there's just so many moving parts going on with it, and so many mm-hmm. things with like the daughter and all of that that we don't get as much action as we'd like. But I think. The runtime maybe mitigates that a bit, but I don't know, kind of how were you feeling about it? Was it boring or did it work or, you know, that kind of thing? I don't think it was boring. I think there is, yeah, kind of too many moving parts. I think that um, I did think it was going to be a bit of a slog to start with. Um, So, like, basically in that opening 20 minutes, because that opening 20 minutes is we get that drug bust, 
Um, we get him recovering in hospital. Uh, we get him kind of, uh, we get like a kind of montage of him like getting fit again and stuff like that. And 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 that's kind of the only 20 minutes. It's pretty slow and there is some stupid stuff in it. You know, the, basically the first shot of the movie we see after the credits where we get lots of whooshy establishing shots of LA yes. is like this kind of overhead shot of like this car. And we get like this ADR dialogue of like him and his partner talking in his car and it sounds it doesn't quite sound like steven seagal even though (laughs) you know that it's supposed to be seagal's character so you're like okay that's weird and then like the first like the drug bust is uh the action of the drug bust is kind of filmed in that just that that awful kind of mid to late 2000s uh you know hyper hyper caffeinated editing style where you're like i guess i saw an action sequence um (laughs) (laughs) um, so like at that point i was like i was like oh man i don't know this might be a slog um although there is a funny there is a funny part to that drug bust because like as we know i i don't think we've discussed this yet but uh one of uh Seagal's many ridiculous things is his uh you know his kind of cultural appropriation so (laughs) whenever he's talking to a Hispanic person he puts on like a fake Mexican accent whenever he's talking to a black person he's he's kind of talking kind of abonics um you know like he always bows to Asian people even you know like whatever like it's 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 a weird tick that he has and like when he when his partner like draws a gun on him and then he does he goes full gangster and goes motherfucker i thought i knew you <laughs> I, was, right, yeah. I was like that was the first laugh of the film i was like all right okay maybe it's gonna be quite fun after all right, let's see and then uh, again we get this thing slow recovery and like when he's in the hospital we get like the same shot of uh, him like lying pretending to be asleep looped like we like three times we get the same right. shot like three times and i was like jesus christ but then again and then and then he shoots the partner i was like that's fine all right okay okay it's quite boring um <laughs> but then we get like a classic seagal moment um when he's recovering and that that part of the film's like quite slow and boring uh but we get i think it's his niece so his yeah. niece comes to visit and like uh, and he's complaining about his recovery <laughs> and the thing I love about this is his niece says to him, like, oh man, do you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't worry about your recovery. Most people would have died of what you went through. And then I've literally written down this, the, the quote that you are the inspiration for every guy who ever applied for the SWAT team, presumably in history. Um, and I was like, oh, that's and the great thing about Seagal is like clearly this is a kind of thing Seagal tries to get in the script but his character reacts in a kind of full humble way of kind of right. like ah oh, you shouldn't <laughs> exactly well, and, and and this was for me I think one I think that there's the uncredited Seagal writings in this and I think those were there but also it's the huge mitigation of the fact that somebody got the drop on him, right? It's like, hey, his partner got the drop on him, but he's essentially Superman because he survived this, this shooting that nobody else would have survived. And then you said, 
the result is because he's considered Superman because he's been able he's superhuman in the way he survived this that he's an inspiration he gets to be this inspiration to all the other SWAT cops that like yeah this idea that like there's like a a Seagal picture that everybody's like like you know, like, 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 you know everybody wants to be Seagal but it's that mitigation factor because again in his movies essentially after this nobody gets the drop on Seagal right if if this movie had been made five years after this his partner would have tried to shoot him and he would have shot the partner first, like kind of like, you know, old West um, gun drawing style. And, and then that he would have come up with some kind of fugazi thing about like red tape that probably would have gotten him kicked off the force. Like, Oh, you shot your own partner, you know, man, it was a bum deal. I never did anything like that. He was, he, the motherfucker tried to shoot me first and I had to get him first, you know? And, And then he goes down to, you know, so like, the fact that even somebody got the drop on him is, I think, I, I wonder if he kind of came out of this movie, like, watching it after me, like, I don't like the fact that that guy shot me. You know, I'm Seagal. Nobody's supposed to shoot me first. Um, uh, but, yeah, the mitigation was so extreme that he had to become an inspiration for everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that, that's kind of, like, I was like, oh, that, that, like I, that gave me, that was my kind of, like, second laugh of the movie. <laughs> right. And I was like, okay, it's been relatively boring so far, but I've got two laughs so far, so I'm, I'm all right. I'm on track. Um, so, like, and, and then later on, I guess, like, I'll, yeah, later on, some of the action is good. Um, and, like, there is some fun, absurdist moments. So yeah. when the, the villain, the main villain, obviously sends out some of his goons to <laughs> attempt to kidnap uh, Nikita, which yeah. is uh, which is uh, the character who later does get kidnapped. But the first kidnapping attempt fails. The way the first kidnapping attempt fails is hilarious. So basically... Uh, Mason, uh, her boyfriend and douchebag, uh, is, is he's apparently a famous boxer. So when they come out of a club, um, they get stalked by paparazzi. And there's all these paparazzis outside their car um, because she's the daughter of like this kind of former cop stroke turned oil millionaire. Um, and then and he's the famous boxer. And then he gets out the car to confront the paparazzi. The paparazzi then reveal themselves to be gangsters who are kidnappers. Yeah. And which, which I found funny because I was like, yeah, but what if he didn't get out of the limo? Like, <laughs> right. like, was that always part of the plan? Because like Mason later is a turncoat and later becomes part of the gangster. But at this point in the movie, um, it seems he has not become uh, part of the, the kind of uh, criminal underworld. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like, would they, would they have just like, I mean, would they just, when, at what point would they reveal themselves to be kidnappers if Mason hadn't got out of the car? I, I, and why go through the whole, like, like they're coming, they're on their own. They've got like one bodyguard. It's basically her, Mason, the bodyguard and the driver. So there's like four of them in a completely empty car park. Why go through the elaborate charade of being pretend paparazzi? <laughs> right. Well, and, and right, because we know that Mason hasn't gone turncoat yet because there's this whole scene in a cafe, in an outdoor cafe that Seagal yeah. witnesses where he sees him go turncoat. So he hadn't gone turncoat yet at that point. He he was still, I mean, he wasn't loyal to her because he was cheating on her with other women, 
but he he at least wasn't a, a part of the kidnapping. Um, and so, yeah, and then the other thing, too, these kidnappers do such a great job because they just drive away in the limo without realizing that she could just open the door if she wanted to. And, and um, you know, of course, driving out of a car park like that, it's not like you can go that fast to get out of there, though. Anybody who's been in there with, um, you know, you, you see people that drive pretty fast in those and you've got to be careful. But um, she just gets out and, and runs away. Um, and uh, it's 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 they kind of create some like manner of intrigue, too, that didn't make any sense where she tries to get out one way. It's locked. So she just comes back the way she came and then just like jumps down like a ledge area and runs off. And um, yeah, it was the, the, the kidnappers were not great. It's, it's funny how I guess it's like maybe they learn and they get to be better kidnappers later or maybe the uh, the baddie hires a, a better kidnapper later when they do it. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was it was quite a scene. And then, of course, yeah. We go through this whole thing of Seagal coming down there and like revamping all their security, which, again, did absolutely nothing because she ended up getting kidnapped anyway. Yeah, that's right, because like they let her still date Mason, who's clearly a terrible person. Like because we were introduced like basically um, we're introduced to Mason as he's doing some sparring in a boxing gym. Yeah. And he just completely beats up a guy in sparring, which seems like. Uh, what it seems like it's just a poorly run boxing gym if you can just like just knock people out you know like you're really not supposed to do that in sparring um like you if you've been in any boxing gym or any mma gym or any martial art arena um yeah just like knocking people out in training it's generally seen as a little bit of a full part um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so anyway, and then he's just like hanging out, sleezing on other women in the club in front of his girlfriend, and then seems weirdly surprised that his girlfriend calls him out on it. Right. Um, and his priorities are so fucking weird. Yeah. Because you mentioned that scene in the cafe that happens much later on in the movie. Mason goes to meet up some of the bad guys, Jason Cross's goons, um, to basically say that I I know Mr. Cross gave me this money to take a dive in a fight. I'm not willing to do that, but apparently I am willing to sell out my girlfriend. So for some reason, I care more about my boxing record than the person that I am allegedly in love with, uh, which is, wow. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) right. Yeah. And, and it's the other thing too, of course, that's happening for us as the viewer that makes this even kind of smarmier is that Seagal shows up and we don't have an age for Liesl Karstens, um, the actress who plays Nikita. Um, but my hunch is if, if I were to guess, she wasn't born any, any, earlier than probably the mid eighties. Um, but could be even potentially younger than that. And her character, yeah, that was my guess too. Like I was born in 1985 and I, I, I would have guessed her age is like similar to mine or even maybe a couple of years younger than I am. Yeah. I mean, at least the character she's playing is someone who's going out to nightclubs in her early twenties. So sure. at the very least that's who she's playing. And she starts developing feelings for Seagal's character. And they don't take it fully all the way there, right? Like, there is no love sequence between them or anything like that. And the funny thing is that the poor man's Harry Dean Stanton, he seems completely fine with all of it. He's fine with her dating this this cheeseball guy. And he's like, you know, the, the boxer. He's like, oh, he's a young guy. The young guys do things like, I don't 
I, I don't know. I mean, we've both been there. We've both been young guys at one time. I don't remember. I don't know about you, but I, I was never in a situation where I was like, oh, I'm dating somebody, but I'm going to go to a club and, and think it's okay to hang out with multiple other women and possibly, you know, and hook up with them. Um, that wasn't really something that I, I saw as, a, as an okay thing, no, but I guess. I, I, I didn't I didn't think that was an okay thing either, but then, like, I guess he <laughs> did say that that's a young, when, a, when a young guy like it's a it's a very dim view of masculinity right. oh it's just like because he specifically says and neither of us were rich and famous when we were young um right. so like um he specifically says oh yeah if, if you're like if you become famous and rich as a young male of course you will be an actively sexual predator um so it's just like wow i mean i hope not all famous young guys are sexual predators <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, so we, we get that and he seems to be completely fine with that as opposed to being like, yeah, my daughter maybe shouldn't be with this guy. And then she seems to be okay with her having feelings for, for Steven Seagal's character who is, you know, uh, at least a good 30 years, his, you know, her, her um, his, his, her senior. Um, and to be honest, you know, yes, he, he, his character is cool in the sense that he can fight people, but beyond that, I don't know really what he's bringing to the table. Like he's not bringing a lot of personality to the table. Um, obviously he's, 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 you know, he's, he's carrying around a spare tire and I'm not here to make fun of anybody's weight, but I'm just saying like, if the charisma is not happening, right there, you know, beyond the fact that he can fight people and maybe that's enough for her, maybe that's, that's plenty fine for her, but it did take on an odd kind of like we were talking about with command performance, right? Whereas like every woman had a thing for Dolph's character. At least Dolph's character has that like that Scandinavian good looks kind of, you know, chiseled yeah, yeah, features yeah. thing that, uh, you know, I mean, I guess it, it's a golf's favor here. Um, yes, the hair is, is is interesting, but at least he doesn't have that like, like that Chia Pet like donut goatee thing that he seems to sport in a lot of later movies so so i guess you know it's not so bad um and again the movie doesn't fully yeah. take it there no it do it doesn't fully take it there and and maybe it's just like because it does seem like quite a grim world in right. this movie um like so uh there's a scene earlier on in the movie where two of jason cross's goons um hassle a mexican woman called allegra um and they're quite uh, basically, she she spits at one of them, and then he makes a, a quite sexually aggressive comment, um, and and then kind of tries to throttle her, and and then thankfully Segal steps in and like uh, you know just beats him up, and and then breaks uh, his friend's arm and 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 stuff like that, and then later on in the movie, um, there is a scene in in the club. The apparently the one club in town like right. seems like a big city, but apparently they just have one club. But anyway, um, but we'll skip over that. Uh, basically, one of Mason's friends like uh, tries to undo a woman's dress at the bar, despite her showing no sexual uh, interest in them uh, whatsoever. So, so and there's lots of these little moments where it seems like. 90% of the males in this movie are potential rapists. Yeah. So the fact that like uh Seagal's character has no rapey vibe, which <laughs> is unusual in this film, maybe it's that's just enough. That's just enough to get all oh, right. He's oh, one of the few non-rapey guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's a really great point because 
you're right with that grim view kind of thing because you know when you look at a lot of his direct-to-video movies, it's the same thing, right? It's um, you know, in this case, it's a woman who is playing the daughter of 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 a, of a close friend. But a lot of times, you know, when he's in Eastern Europe, right, these are Eastern European women. They're usually like Eastern European models that are, are just in the film. But in a lot of cases, there are situations where they're coming from trafficking situations where he's rescuing them. Um, there's a lot of knight in shiny armor kind of movies with him. Um, there's there's, um, uh, there, you know, I think um, the one that I just watched recently, End of a Gun, he's protecting this woman, Jade, U, uh, played by Jade Ewan, um, who was in a uh, uh, pop group, The Sugar Babes. And um in her case, actually, she's a little bit different because she actually has a little bit more agency. Um, she's extremely good-looking, and, and there's a sense that she's using her good looks to manipulate Seagal, which, of course, he doesn't want to fully go there, but but there is that that vibe there. Um, but, yeah, I think of a lot of them. I think one of them one of them that's really bad in that sense because, um, you, you know, a dangerous man is there, and then I think it's um, a good man, which I guess that's not the same character. It's the same character as in Force of Execution, but not um, – it's, but it's, it's another Keone Waxman one. But uh, in A Good Man, he, um, he befriends a woman, a young woman who has a young – what we think is a young daughter – um, but we find out that, no, it's the young sister. And it's almost like the sense of like, oh, good, she's not defiled, right? By, you know, she's, she's, she's chased for, for Seagal to be able to, to save her. Um, and, and in her situation, she's being forced to tend bar for a local Russian mafia as opposed to being, um, you know, a, a human traffic, uh, a, a white slavery victim. But, yeah, there's a lot of those kind of vibes in there in terms of the way his interactions are with women um, that – I think you you could definitely talk about that, that. Like, there's that sense that, like, in a way, it's almost like we think of when you talk about the the issues that he's had. It's almost kind of like Bill Cosby sort of grooming the audience, right? That like, oh no, no, Seagal can't be doing any of these 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 things that he's been accused of. Because look at him in these movies; he's the one guy that's that's not the rapey guy. Yeah, he's always beating down these creeps, and and like I I have to say, right, when he does. The couple of scenes that we get some martial arts action, which is very slight, right. um, but we, we get we get a smattering of it, are actually relatively, uh, kind of relatively solid. Yeah. Like, they're very brief, um, but his little beatdown of, of the two kind of goons who, who harassed um, Allegra um, was pretty good. And his beatdown of, like, Mason's, like, friend who like tries to sexually harass that girl in, in the club that's uh that's like decent and he has one later on in, in a cafe uh which is quite fun and then he has a final fight with like jason cross's uh second in command uh which which again is is, is quite fun so like I think like these are the kind of even low we get like long stretches of it like not much happening and and it being a bit boring and you know like there is a bunch of padding here you know obviously when he's trying to get back to fitness from recovery we get this like knife throwing montage which seems to go on for a long time and when he first comes to the the kind of mansion compound uh he's like yeah we got to do security my way and then we get like a a kind of like fitting the home security montage, which again seems to go on for quite a long time, you know. So right. there is a bunch of pad there is a bunch of padding here, but I there there's enough. There's just enough to keep your interest. Like it, it, you know, just as you're about to kind of switch off and be like, yeah, I don't know, yeah, oh what? Um, there there's just enough that you're like, 
Oh, okay. Okay, I'll, I'll give you, I'll get you know, like, oh, Seagal will break another person's arm. Or we'll get, like, a, an, absurd, and again, like, another absurd Seagal moment where, you know, some character tells him how brilliant he is, and then he just kind of sits back and goes, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's okay, you know, like, yeah, I'm just, you know, like, even, like, when, um, he breaks that guy's arm in the in the club, like he beats up Mason's friend, and then Nikita is like all over him, like I've right. never seen anything like that. That was the greatest thing I've ever saw, kind of thing. And he's right. like, I I just got lucky, you know, like you know, and like um, you know, and it's yeah, it's kind of all hilariously done. And I, I did notice, like, because I had like the sound like maxed out on this film because like even though Seagal tends to mumble his dialogue, it seemed extra mumbly in this movie, yes. I have to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you get those ADR moments where it's so not him talking, which is, you know, yeah. just like you get those those moments where it, that's definitely not him in the reverse shot or that's not him kicking somebody. You know, the, the doubling work that you get with these is a lot. But you're right. There's a lot of these moments where it's like how great Seagal is, you know, like, like where like there's that scene where, Liesel, or where Nikita's talking to her dad, the, the poor man's Harry Dean Stanton, and she's saying how she wanted Seagal to beat up Mason, you know, that she thought it would be good for him. And he's just kind of smirking because he's overhearing it, like, oh, yeah, yeah, she, like, you know, she kind of digs it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so it's, it, it is all kind of really interesting. But like, you're right. I think one of the things that helps this movie, and, you know, people think I'm obsessed with runtimes with movies because my rule is, like, I, I always say, like, I, I like the um, the Roger Corman rule of 88 minutes because it's eight, re you know, 11 reels and you don't go over that as opposed to 90 minutes. 80 minutes is even better for me. But yeah, anything that gets once you get after 90 minutes, I always feel like it's borrowed time. And this movie, it clocks in, I think, at like 94. So it's really not horrible. I mean, that that extra four minutes is probably coming in at the credits mostly. And I think when you get a movie that when it's stuck in that 90 minute range, yes, there's padding, but you can only do padding so much before you've got to get to those action sequences. And I think that does help a little bit that, um, you know, this isn't going to be a long sit for you that, you know, 90 minutes will get you there. So in that sense, it's kind of a fun Seagal, you know, actioner in that way. Yeah. I'm there's kind of like quite a few people die in this movie. Like, you know, <laughs> yes. you do, you do get quite, and it's quite, it's quite funny because, um, when the kidnapping, the the second kidnapping, the one that actually does work, right. there's like a massive shootout. Like Seagal, yeah. like um, uh, he uh, comes across because um, basically he's given Nikita this necklace that has this transponder, so he can always follow her, and um, so he knows his whereabouts, so he could be a bodyguard, you know, twenty four seven or whatever. Um, so he falls in in, in the car because. He apparently cannot get to back to Nikita faster than Mason can to right. warn her that Mason is in on the kind of kidnap plot. But yeah. anyway, uh, we'll skip over that. Uh, so, <laughs> like, you know, basically, uh, Mason sets her up and then she is kidnapped. And, um, like, Seagal has this massive shootout followed by a car chase and then is subsequently arrested. Um, you know, because he he's killed like four people or whatever, right, right. and it, like, and you know, he's not an law enforcement officer, or he's you know, obviously he's a former. He's just been mandatory retired from LAPD, but you know, this is apparently set in Texas. Um, yeah. so he's he's had this, and then 
they're like thinking about arresting him, but then in the end he just kind of gets a stern telling off of like. So we get we kind of get that kind of scene that you typically get in like a, like a kind of lethal weapon type movie where the captain tells off our hero and being like, right. yeah, you do that again and you'll be off the force or you're suspended. Give me your badge. You know, right. we kind of get that from this kind of Detective Simon character. Um, but then. Uh, apparently because uh, that you know like you say um off-brand harry dean stanton has a lot of strings that he can pull he phones up and be like ah can you not take a light on him um and also because of seagal's natural amazing charm um <laughs> the detective just shares uh ongoing investigation information uh with him and then he's let go uh, with just a slap on the wrist of like, and don't go about killing people again. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, so, so, so you do get that. And like, that's like, I mean, again, it's kind of short, you know, like the, the editing's a bit janky and, you know, it's it's like that kind of late 2000s editing that, you know, it's kind of makes your head spin a little. Um, although I do think the worst example of that is in the opening drug busting. I do think that the editing actually calms down a little um, as we kind of drift on uh, into the later uh, parts of the movie. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's just enough. There's, there's just enough. Every so often, just when you're getting bored, you're just being like, oh man, feels like we're hanging around this mansion a lot, just watching like Seagal like just kind of walking around but then something will happen and you'll be like oh that was kind of fun okay yeah. I'll continue <laughs> yeah I, I, and I think that's kind of the thing with these Seagal movies right when people see these on their streaming sites or whatever now this one isn't as available for streaming um so I know um I in my case actually I got lucky because uh, we, were, we were talking about this last night um or last night my time um and i discovered my, my cable company has a had a deal where i could i could i could rent it but not pay um so i it was essentially a, a free you know like i had a, a free rental is what they they gave me so um i because yeah. you know, I, I had seen it before when i reviewed it but um you know, of course i wanted to watch it again for this it had been a long time um but you know this is the kind of movie like I, it's probably not worth like you know the the you know anything to like go out of your way to find it but like if you're browsing one of your streaming you know services that you're subscribed to and you see it on there and you're looking for like a a 90 minute time killer it it kind of does the trick in that sense which I think that's probably what the goal is of these movies when they've got Seagal on the tin is that like whether you at that time in 09 you would have been browsing the, the 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 video store still for DVDs but still that idea that like yeah you know I could do a lot worse than this tonight and and it, it, that's how it kind of makes its money. Yeah, I think I think what would have made this uh, I think what would have made this movie even better is like if it had like a stronger villain. Yeah, because like, and I don't know if this is the actor's fault. Um, the the basically the villain Jason Cross really isn't in the movie that much. I don't think he. The first sight we see of him is in the club and i think that is like 35 to 40 minutes into the movie i don't know exactly i didn't i didn't timestamp it or anything um but yeah and then we just kind of see him kind of spirally throughout and i think what was great particularly about like the kind of 90s seagal films is often to kind of compensate for the fact that like seagal underacts to the point of barely being there um, they would get like a like a like a really good actor as a right. villain to like overact. So like 
so you know and you you know like uh you know obviously you've got like michael kane and on deadly ground you've got tommy lee jones and under siege you've even got somebody like chris christopherson and fire down below and they're just chewing scenery like there's nobody's (laughs) business you know and and i think like and so it ends up kind of balancing out and i you know i think that as fun as moments of this movie was i think there could have been more fun there if they got like just an actor who was willing to commit to just being like just one of the kind of over the top performances that, that like i've you know you see um in a lot of these kind of seagal movies yeah well and another technique that they would use in seagal movies that this this i think could have also helped this movie is a lot of times there's a younger actor who does the heavy lifting um, and, sure. and I guess in 09, maybe we're not quite at that point yet with his career. Actually, now that I think about it, we, we hadn't quite gotten there yet for him. It's something that comes later on for him that you start to see, you know, actors like like um, Byron Mann in, in Absolution or Bren Foster. And um, I believe it's a force of execution, um, you know, um, in a good man. Um, the actor's name, like Victor, I can never remember his last name, um, Victor Webster, who was doing the scorpion king sequels they go in and do all the like the really exciting scenes and that's another thing i think that could have helped this too is that part of the reason i think why we had so few fight scenes and the ones that we had um they were good but a lot of times they were also kind of in that more what i would call the slap chop variety where it's just you know seagal doing his slap chop routine and then the guy just gets you know knocked out or he gets them in a hold or something like that Whereas, like, when you yeah, get, like, because I think at this, I think at this point, he just wasn't willing to move his lower body. So we right. just get, like, a, like a shot of, like, right. his arms. And, yeah, he just, he just does a kind of quick Aikido move. So, like, yeah. It do, yeah, it doesn't look as cool as, like, some of his best fights. But, like, yeah, no, I mean, they're kind of still effective enough. But, yeah, like you say, I don't, yeah, I don't think he, because I haven't really seen any of those movies and I think most of the movies from this period that I have seen, um, like this one and Urban Justice and like Driven to Kill, like it's all pretty much on his shoulders. He doesn't have like a kind of like a partner or anything. Um, I guess he does in a dangerous man, but like he's like his partner's not great in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Like he um it's not quite this it's like it's just sort of starting right the idea is just sort of starting that he's going to do that um byron man i think is that does byron man play the bad guy in that one i can't remember in a dangerous man i think he may have been the the baddie in it and 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 that was i remember I being think, i think the kind of like and he's a bit useless the kind of you kind of younger guy kind of going along with that if, if i remember right i think that's jesse hutch yes is, yeah i think the, you're right is the is the guy who's like kind of uh yeah it's kind of like his sidekick if you if you want to say um in in that movie yeah yeah and it's interesting because yeah this one um you know i think yeah it, it had byron man as the bad guy who was great but except yes. the fight scene at the end true. wasn't good like the fight no. scene um it you because know, again seagal's omnipotent so he doesn't you know he can't take any hits from byron man so they kind of mitigate it better in absolution where byron man is out there really getting after it we get to see all of that kind of stuff but yeah i think the, i think a dangerous man might have been a little bit or not i'm sorry um yeah dangerous man might have been a little bit better than this one um in terms of that and i i also kind of i think for those 09 ones i kind of like um the um oh why can't i think of the name of it the um the the russian one um driven to kill driven to kill yeah where he plays a russian i think those two 
are a little bit better than this one, but then the fourth I, one that I comes would, up. I would say that yeah, I would say that those two are 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 a tad, a tad better than this one. And I, I would say probably the best of the O nine ones I've seen. I've not seen Against the Dark. I don't really have plans to. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> so I think Driven to Kill is possibly the best one, just because it's like the most. It's very you know. I know it's kind of before. It's like five years before John Wick came out. But like, yeah. I guess it's kind of very much in that Taken kind yes. of manner. And while I actually don't like the Taken films. Because, like, you know, Driven to Kill has, like, that typical kind of Seagalist absurdity. Um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily it's a good film, but, like, I would say that actually I have... I had more fun watching Driven to Kill than Taken. Even though yeah. Taken is technically a better made movie. Uh, right. Just because of, like, the kind of grim tone of those movies and that kind of full seriousness of, like, all the characters apart from the lead character kind of like stereotypically dumb action movie characters but we're supposed to take it super serious and you're like i, I don't know I don't, I don't get this um so I, I would say that's the best one because it's just very streamlined and, and you, you get quite a lot of action in that movie and it's hilarious that uh seagal is a former russian mafia member <laughs> yes. turned novelist <laughs> yes, i agree i agree yeah, yeah, that would all worked out. Now, against the dark. So, um, actually, we were talking about Sean Malloy earlier when he talked to, you know, someone with his interview with Benjamin Sachs, but he actually kind of like some, following a similar path with, with you, where he did a Dolph film the first time he was on, and then we did a Seagal film for his second time. He picked against the dark as the one he wanted to do. And so it's a, it's kind of it's like a vampire movie that has Seagal in it. And the way he described it is like kind of the best way if you if you're ever thinking about seeing it. Um, he described it as let's say you're a catering company and you've gotten this really great catering job. And so you're excited to do this catering job. And then somebody comes and tells you, OK, yeah, you're still going to have this catering job. But now every single dish that you make, you need to somehow incorporate pineapple into it. And that's kind of what this movie was, where it's like it's this vampire movie. It's kind of your classic vampire movie in the sense of like a, a group of people in sort of like the apocalypse kind of vampire deal where like there's a virus or something. And a group of people are trying to escape the area they're in to get to another safe place. And it has that feel, and they've just essentially grafted Seagal onto the film, and so that's that's sort of how that one feels. So, out of these O nine ones, it's probably the least um, impressive out of those. Uh, yes, I I kind of picked that up. I was like, you know, as as much uh, as I've enjoyed, uh, and I do enjoy. Um, like these Seagal films uh, for, for their absurdity. And, and sometimes, you know, uh, there's ones like uh, Under Siege and Out for Justice and stuff like that that I actually yeah. think are legitimately great and I will kind of stick up for, even though, yes, Seagal can, can't act. But, like, you know, um, I, I think they're they're just well-made movies. I, I think they're cool. Um, having read the Seagalology book, I have to say, when I was reading about Against the Dark, I was like, I think I might put this in the kind of, um, I think I might put this in the kind of bucket uh, with, you know, things like Flight of Fury and Submerge and things like that, that I'm, I'm just like, I think I might take a swerve, you know, because even there's even like way more dedicated Seagal fans than I am who are like, yeah, submerged against the dark. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah. You will stick up, you know, people that will stick up for a lot of DTV crap that, like, Seagalis put out will not stick up for these films. And I'm like, yeah, 
maybe maybe I won't watch it. But then, I mean, I've watched a lot of terrible horror films. Um, I've watched probably some of the worst horror films ever made. Uh, so so who knows? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could say so. So I kind of, you know, once I started the site, it was like, OK, I've got to kind of watch them all. So I haven't watched Clementine, which is one that um, Seagal did. It was a Korean production, and it's in Korean, and I think there there are English language versions of it you can find out there, but it doesn't quite fit the direct-to-video mode necessarily as, as a lot of the other ones. But I just recently finally saw the the last direct-to-video one I had to see, which was End of a Gun. And the reason why it took so long is I was waiting for it to be free on streaming because I just you know sure. didn't want to pay um, for it. And so finally he showed up on a Redbox, the service here. They actually had a free version, so I watched it. So I now can say I've actually seen all of the direct-to-video ones, um, again, depending on whether somebody counts Clementine or not. And I got to say, it's, it, when you hit this period of 09, right, when you're talking about the Keeper, Dangerous Man, Driven to Kill in particular, it, he starts to fall off after that. And there is one exception, and that is a movie called Attrition that he made in 2018 that – was a production that I think he was really invested in. Like it was something that he really wanted to make and and he put a lot into, which explains why it's so good. Um, in 2016, he has, I think, seven movies come out in 2017. It's kind of like this last gasp thing where he just puts out a bunch of stuff. And then after that, he's only had a few. I think he's had four come out since then. Um, but that's kind of the last gasp. So this is an interesting period, this 09 period, because I mean, you, you can find things to, to like in those other ones, but you don't get as many keepers like you would, like you'd, you'd want. And, you know, keepers, I think, are the kind of movies where, like you, like we've described, where they get the job done. You know, they're not spectacular. You can find plenty that are better, but they get the job done for a time killer. He gets to a point where where, where you start to get fewer and fewer that, that work as a time killer. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing. And I don't think I've watched any of his movies kind of post- kind of this period i think um i uh, presumably i oh, was machete 2010 yes is, is the yeah. appearance in that so i think that's the latest i've got and i think the the reason for that is like the seagal movies i enjoy are kind of like this movie or or driven to kill or uh, a dangerous man or urban justice that are like solidly made DTV movies that are a bit absurd um, and they're good time killers or the ones that are just bonkers. So like out for a kill, um, out of reach, into the sun, the ones that are just like insane and you're just like, how the fuck did this get made? Like, like, and they, 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 so they're enjoy, they they have a lot of enjoyment as as well. They might be terrible, terrible films, but like, it's just, like they're just like they've got so much kind of nuttiness in them. You're like yeah. you just like can't help but watch. You're like, wow, what'll happen <laughs> next? He's finding a guy in a barber shop chair, not giving a fuck, and this guy's like swinging about like a monkey. Like you know, like um, you know, like all that kind of stuff. So like that's the right. kind of two modes. And like I think from from what I've seen from trailers of a lot of his kind of like post twenty ten stuff. Uh, they just look kind of boring. They don't look yeah. like fun time killers, like I'm, like, you know, like uh, you know, driven to kill or in urban justice, and they don't look like totally nuts, like uh, an out of reach or an, an out for a kill. Um, so I, I don't know, like uh, maybe maybe someday um, I will I will check uh, some of them out. Um, I did I did want to mention like um, you know like if just uh, kind of a, a last thing. 
um, on this movie before we like wrap up or whatever is I did enjoy like his fight, his end fight with the main henchman of Jason Cross, uh, the Tory, because like when he's kind of chasing Tory, uh, we get like a fun moment where Tory uh, shoots a bunch of barrels, which just explode. I mean, presumably they were full of oil, I guess. Um, But even then, I don't know if they would cause that explosion from one bullet to one barrel. But anyway, it's cool. You know, you get the stereotypical, like, action star walking away from the explosion in a cool manner. So you get that. Now you get that fun pop. And then they go into the final fight. Initially, uh, Tori just is like, all right, I give up. But then he's like, oh, fuck it, I'll fight you. And then he says, me casa, tu casa, motherfucker. Which yeah. I don't think makes sense as like a kind of bring it online. My, my house is your house, motherfucker. Right. Like, right. like, as an insult, I don't think that works. But anyway, it's such an absurd line. I had to write it down and be like, yep, yeah, that's fun. Um, <laughs> and then we get a classic Seagal moment where, uh, you know, the guy obviously owns a glass table. And Tori is thrown through that glass table. (laughs) And then um, he finishes him (laughs) off with a killer throat punch, which seems excessive. But, like, uh, you know, it's the gal. He's always always going to go for the overkill. Um, So, yeah, I I thought that. Oh, yeah. And then after he gets a thank you from everybody, oh, thanks for saving the day. Um, We get, like, a slow-mo walking away from the crime scene as the the fire still sizzles. And I'm like, oh, yeah, classic. Uh, So, 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 yeah. So, like, that kind of end sequence, I was like, ah, it was, you know, there's a lot of kind of low moments in this movie, but... Uh, there is these moments that are worth it, and that 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 kind of end sequence uh, was one of them. Yeah, I agree because you know usually with Seagal with those end fights, it's not as much fun because he dispatches of the baddie completely without them you know laying you know laying a finger on him. And that was yeah. the case here, right? This this guy is no match for Seagal, and he he. He, he can't fight him at all like it's 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 pretty quick and done over you know done done quick you know i shouldn't say it's done quickly because it's like the guy gets beaten up and then he comes back for more gets beaten up more um but you're you're right like it hits all of those points like the the smashing through the 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 thing um you know the guy picks up a broken bottle like he's going to use that to to fight Seagal and it's just like it's like you, you got to have weapons right because i think that's part of Seagal's deal is he needs to be able to disarm people with weapons um so he's got to be yeah. able to do his slap chop thing to knock things out of people's hands um yeah the throat thing it was like i think he he actually used his fingers to like impale the throat almost like um not quite to the extent of the the patrick swayze throat rip of of uh of, no of, not quite to that because yeah. there's no gore or anything it's just like yeah he just like basically crushes his larynx and right. kills them <laughs> exactly. and yeah it's it, it it is kind of satisfying i mean when i think of the best ones with seagal with those end fights i mean my my favorites my two favorites for these dtvs i think um we, you were t- we were talking about um out for a kill and yes um, you know, you're talking about the absurdity in that movie. The most absurd thing for that movie is the very end where um, the baddie is running away and Seagal, out, you know, grabs a samurai sword off the counter or whatever, you know, off, off the shelf and opens up the, the window. He's on the second floor and just hurls this samurai sword from the second story window at the guy who's escaping into his car and decapitates him. 
uh, with that, which was just absolutely fantastic. And then um, at the end of, um, uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, you were talking about the absurdity in these movies. I remember seeing that on, um, I caught the end of the, the movie on um, the cable network here in the United States, USA Network. And for years, I was trying to track that movie down. I was like, where is that movie? Where can I find this movie? I think I watched like five or six Seagal DTV flicks before I finally found it. Um because I just needed to see that again. <laughs> Definitely, if your listeners take anything away from this conversation, it's to yeah. go away and watch Out for a Kill. It's one of the most outrageously funny action movies yes. you will ever see. <laughs> yeah, it, it has everything you want. I mean, I mean, just even the title, right? I mean, they just essentially just take two Seagal movies and, and, and jam them together to, to make it, you know, because yeah. he's, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's hard to kill or he's out for justice, one or the other. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, there's that one. And then, of course, I think we talked about um, Urban Justice. And there's a scene at the end of Urban Justice where he he disarms somebody and then he just walks away, right? He doesn't do anything beyond that. And um, uh, Eddie Griffin um, in the film with him just looks at him and goes, that's gangsta. And I just love that, too, <laughs> that, that, that end sequence there. Um, you know, you don't always get a good ending for a Dolph, or sorry, for a Seagal film. So I think you're right in, in in pointing out the ending here because it is satisfying enough. And sometimes that helps too when a movie has elements of of downtime and padding that you almost kind of forget those if you get a good enough ending that that it works. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like if a film, you're always going to be more forgiving of a film if it ends on like a kind of like a high note, yeah. you know. Because that, that's that's your last image of the film. So if your last image of the film, if the kind of uh, final thing that you see in a film leaves a kind of good taste in your mouth, you're you're going to be like, you'll look back on it kind of fondly, and then like maybe a little later you'll be like, yeah, it wasn't that good, but like you know, like but just <laughs> a, just in that moment when you finish watching the film, you'll be like, oh, that was quite fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think there is enough too if you're watching this with a group of people that you can. The story is not so complicated that you and your friends can't, like, talk over it. And I think that's another thing, too, with these Seagal movies is that, that if you watch them in groups, there's a lot to make fun of in, in these movies. There's a lot to poke fun at with him. Um, you know, again, with the – I mean, the ADR things. Also, the driving sequences where it's just like he's in a car and it's so obvious that he's not driving. I mean, it looks like a – you know, a 60s procedurals or something like that, where they're driving the cop car and you just see the screen in the background. But this is 2009 and it's, you know, um, and, and this is another hallmark of what we get from Seagal later on is that he he stands less and less in his films. He, he does more and more sit down roles. And part of what he can do in a sit down role is he can drive and just be sitting behind the wheel of a car and it works there. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing some other things that kind of become hallmarks of his movies later. And that's one of them, I think. Right, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, if I if I uh, deign to check them out, I will, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly see that. But yes, I mean, like uh, Seagal movies are kind of, um, I personally uh, don't don't drink anymore. Um, not because I was an alcoholic or anything. I just I just gave it up because like I have gut issues and I yeah. just um, wasn't worth it. Yeah. Um, but he is like, yeah, he's prime kind of drinking game material. You know right. that kind of thing <laughs> yeah. of like. Take a shot when anytime ADR happens where it's clearly not Seagal's voice. Take a <laughs> shot anytime you see a clear stunt double. Take a right. shot every time somebody gives like a ridiculous compliment to Seagal. And, <laughs> you know, we find out he is the greatest human who's ever lived. Yes. Um, 
and we just get various details of why he's the greatest human ever lived, you know, throughout the movie. Um, you know, it, it's uh, yeah, you can always have a great time kind of doing that sort of thing with uh, Seagal movies. Yeah, yeah, I have the same way. I've kind of stopped drinking myself, and, and for a similar reason. Yeah, because uh, I, I drinking kind of um, yeah, kind of kind of gives me some uh, internal issues as well. One of the things I have discovered is hop water. Um, I don't know if that's something that you you have in in New Zealand, but in America here, a lot of uh, uh-huh. um, uh, independent labels will make like sparkling water that's made with hops, and so it has a kind of a a cleaner beer taste to it. And so I that, I think that's a great deal. You know, I mean, it's, it's expensive to hop water, but, um, you know, uh, doing a hop water drinking game to uh, to Seagal actually works, too. <laughs> I could. Yeah, I could imagine that. I could yeah. imagine. Yeah. Anything. Anything. <laughs> yeah, sure. Excellent. Well, well, Scott, anything else on this film that you wanted to mention? I'm trying to I'm trying to think is there I think we've we've gone through uh most of it um I guess like uh the one the only one of the elements that we we didn't really discuss was kind of like uh the detective Simon character oh, yes yeah um so like the detective Simon character is really quite funny because of like how the character kind of switches so the yeah. first scene we see the character is when um Seagal arrives on a private plane in quote unquote Texas because we've yeah. seen all those establishing shots. I mean, there's a, like a tourism board shot of the Alamo. So right. It's got to be in Texas, right? Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so he he arrives and then like um, Detective Simon gives him like this stern speech, the kind of speech that you're like, ah, he's probably a corrupt cop. Yes. Then the next time we see Detective Simon, he's like. 10 times friendlier and uh, suddenly he's wanting to work with Seagal. He he understands where he's coming from. He's like, oh yeah, talking cop to cop kind of thing. And you're like, where did this character come from? Yeah. He seems like, like when, when Seagal first arrived, he seemed like the racist sheriff in a in a like a in a like a horror movie, you know, like right. when you go to like a small town. Like that's what his that was like his vibe, like when you first see him. And then he's like white knight detective for the rest of the movie and i was like wait so why was he such an ass in the first scene what was that trying to establish <laughs> yeah it was it was almost it almost had a feeling of what what i was joke up plot convenience theater where it was almost like it was convenient for the plot for him to turn right because it would have added i guess maybe i don't i don't know i i know exactly what you mean though because he was setting up to be a certain way and then he reveals himself to be like he's after this Jason Cross guy as well. And he kind of sees it as Seagal, somebody who can work outside the law and potentially solve his problem for him. And um, but also, too, he we lose him for huge chunks of the movie as well. It's like um, he's there for that scene in the beginning where, where Seagal gets off the plane. He's there later when when he ha- he meets Seagal in town and kind of tells him what his vibe is. And even there, I don't know how you felt, but even there, I still thought maybe he was going to be revealed to he be corrupt. Still, he was just going to still be revealed to be, to be. Yeah. Cause like he, like he is very sparsely throughout the movie. Yeah. So, so the first scene we see him, we, he, he's like that. And you know, he, he comes, he comes across as like that typ- typical kind of um, small town sheriff, even though it's a big city, but you know, um, that kind of character. Uh, and then we see him again 
I don't know, like 10, well, maybe 15 minutes later or something like that, um, when the, the sc- home security is being fitted to the mansion. And, uh, you know, like, again, he seems very aggressive. He's talking to some of the, the kind of other staff at the mansion being like, what's all this shit? And like, well, you know, and asking about like Seagal's character and, oh, I don't know. Um, and it's like, okay, right. So again, he seems like he, he might be on like Jason Cross's payroll or something. Or he might be corrupt in some way. Um, and then the third scene we see him, yeah, he bumps into Seagal's character in the street and he seems way more friendly. And it's like, okay, so he might be a good guy. And then the fourth time we see him in the police station where he shares information with him, he's like, all right, you're right. Okay, so when he met him in the street, that wasn't an act. He actually is after Jason Cross and he actually wants to get this guy. And it's like, but why did you establish his character as so aggressive? And so, like, I don't know, like, maybe they're just trying to throw out, uh, like, I don't even understand why they would try to make him a red herring. We kind of know the player's... Because we've already got Mason, we know we kind of know he's going to turn. You're like, yeah, okay, he's, you know. So I, I don't. So it just seems like an an extra element that we don't need. Like we don't need like a, another kind of corrupt person, you know, working for the gangster. Because we've already got Mason. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Like it didn't add up to much. So I don't know why they made him as a kind of red herring like that, and then revealed him to be an ally um so yeah the character was weird and also the other thing um that i really enjoyed was that character goes to visit uh connor who is nikita's father yeah and um this is just something that they were like clearly did like one takeoff yeah because he like goes like oh yeah um uh, he mentions detective simon mentions uh something about roland ballinger now yes. we've been introduced to uh, the characters roland salinger on imdb is listed as roland salinger on the credits he's listed as roland salinger but then um then you think connor is going to say to the take of simon it's actually salinger not ballinger um yeah. you know he's my close friend but then connor also refers to him as roland ballinger and it's like okay that's fine Obviously, they got a bit mixed up as a dud take, but do, right. I, I don't know. Did they not have enough time or money to do like a second <laughs> take? Just say Roland Salinger. You said the wrong name. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And the other thing with that character, with that Kevin Wiggins as the actor who plays him, he is exceedingly lantern jawed and chiseled. And yes. there's a feeling like a guy like that should be used in more of a way, right? Like the, either he should be confronting Seagal, fighting Seagal, or fighting somebody, right? Like he, if he was going to be a good guy and not be a red herring, then he should be helping Seagal in a way, right? He should be knocking guys out and punching people and shooting people. And the fact that like he's presented as this extreme lantern giant, I mean, you know, he, he, he's, he, he cuts a huge figure in, the, in this suit that he's in. He looks like someone who could take care of business, and he's just barely, you know, barely in the movie. And I kind of wonder too if that character was supposed to have a bigger part, and part of the Seagal rewrite might have been to diminish that character so Seagal could have more of the glory. Uh, but it, he was kind of wasted. It felt like to me. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Um, I was really surprised that he had really nothing to do with the kind of final uh, shootout and battle. Um, so, like, obviously. 
uh, before we get to the the chase and fight with um, the kind of head henchman Tory, um, Seagal takes a bunch of people out, kind of just like knifes them in the back because um, they have <laughs> Jason Cross has these like snipers at different places and he kind of stealthily takes out the snipers and and then he starts shooting people more of Jason Cross's men and uh, yeah I thought that either that character was being set up of being like, yeah, one of those characters, one of those kind of like, uh, you know, boss level characters that he would have to fight, you know, so maybe fight him and fight Tori or something like that. Or, you know, now it's revealed to be an ally. There's like a team up in the end and yeah, maybe he doesn't get, you know, maybe it doesn't really make sense for him to get involved in the action beforehand. But for that kind of uh, final siege as the, as the the kind of kidnap exchanges going down, um, you you'd think he'd be involved in that, and, and they even kind of set it up like that because uh, Detective Simon gets this note of be like be at Cross Ranch at eight o'clock, right. and you're like, okay, this Detective Simon guy and Segal, they're going to team up, they're going to yeah. create mayhem, and. And and it's kind of it's kind of weird that that doesn't that doesn't happen. And even the people he does team up with, because um, we we didn't really mention that uh, the driver kind of gets in on the action, and the 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 brothers to the Allegra, who was the the one who was harassed earlier on in the movie, they kind of come and and get involved to try and snipe a few people off. But yeah, they get like. I think you see them shoot like one person each and okay. then the rest of the actions all taken, all handled uh, by, by Seagal's character. So like, and I, again, I don't know like in, how much of that is like Seagal's creative in, input of like, no, I got to be the main, main focal period focused for this. You know, I can't be teaming up with detective Simon and, and these, <laughs> I, like, I don't even think the Mexican brothers get names. They're just like, no, these are Allegra's brothers. So that I'm, I'm really not trying to be racist when I say Mexican brothers. They just like they are just referred to as Allegra's brothers and 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 that and that's it. Um and uh, yeah, I if I, if I remember right, I think the driver is named Manuelo. Um yes. yeah. so I think he is he is at least given a name. Um but again, I think he shoots like one guy and that and that's it. So like yeah. Segal, not for team ups in this era. <laughs> Oh, right. Yeah, no, he's definitely not doing that. Yeah, he's definitely doing his own like, yeah, I, I, I do think there was a, there was probably room for more of that. And it didn't happen. I mean, you know, in terms of like you talk about with the, the Mexican characters in the film, um, you know, there is almost like that sense because like the, there's there's a, there's a hint that the Jason Cross character is a white supremacist. And that's part of the reason why Higgins want Wiggins or I'm sorry, Kevin Wiggins, character, Detective Simon wants to take down Jason Cross is that he's forming a separatist group. And there's and again, that's even something else that's like just barely hinted at, right? But there's no real mention of any kind of racism. In fact, if there's any racism, the film itself kind of depicts Mexican characters in the sense of like they're loyal servants, like you know that that like the characters yeah, in the film. Yeah, I I think like that's that's one of those weird things. Is like I think that's also kind of like a Sagal trope, right? Where yeah. where I. This is a thing that, like, I didn't notice when I was younger, but I did notice when I grew up kind of thing. When I was younger, 
I thought Seagal was cool because he looked badass. And I also thought Seagal was cool because he was an ally to the underdog. And, uh, and you know, in kind of various kind of um, uh, native people and, 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 you know, people, ethnic minorities and stuff like that. Um, but if you look back on those films, it's like he is a bad ally. He is right. like so, like, he is... He, you know, he is very much um, like fulfilling the white savior narrative of yes. being like, of being like, yes, I care about you people, but you can't really do things yourself. So right. I'm just going to fluff your hair and you know do the do the things that need to be done. And it's like, oh, he's like, oh, it's so condescending. Like, yeah. fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and this movie definitely has that vibe in it, but it. It, what it does is it tries to set it up, make it seem like it's more benevolent because it's trying to set it off against this white supremacist yeah. character who, again, they don't really do anything about him being a white supremacist, which is, is you know, it's just like, again, it's like this other thing just sort of thrown out there, but it's not really a thing. Um, so, yeah, it, it, and, and it, and again, that kind of gets to that point you were talking about with, like, the Mexican characters not always having names um, is that, you know, they're just the Mexican brothers. It's sort of like, you know, but they're, they're loyal Sir, you know, like they're, 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 they they perform their job admirably, you know, they're, they're loyal servants in that sense, which is a horrible thing to say. That's how the movie's depicting them in a lot of cases. And it's, um, yeah, it's it's not a great, it's, it's, it's something, you know, I was watching a Western with my wife because um, on Saturdays here in, in the U.S. there's a, a retro channel, MeTV, that does Westerns kind of in the Saturday afternoon thing. And that's a trope that you see all the time, right, is that you either have the vile kind of um, depraved uh, minority characters who just you know do horrible things or you have that loyal servant type of character who the the there's there's evil racist people in the film and or in, in the in the show and the main character is not racist but he's not racist in the sense that like 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 Seagal's not racist here in the sense of like well you know if if you you know you do your job well I I'm, I'm good with you you know but you know, don't start thinking like you should be the star of the movie, right? Kind of that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah it, it's it's sort of what happens with Seagulls. But like you said, he's he's not always a great. He seems like a great advocate when he really isn't. Yeah, no, no, he's he's really quite quite a poor advocate, you know, because of the kind of just yeah, just the kind of weird condescendingness and like the kind of yeah, well, as we kind of discussed about the kind of cultural appropriation thing of, of just being like <laughs> he likes to put on these fake accents and like like pretend to be like that type of person in like right. a kind of goofy and kind of slightly insulting way um <laughs> so so yeah and yeah i think like i that's another thing i didn't quite understand about the villain character jason cross i'm not quite if they were like making him a white supremacist that's you know it's perfectly legitimate you know like um yeah make him a white supremacist but like they they don't really like you say they just don't make it part of the plot. Right. Like other characters mention he likes mentioned like twice that he's a white supremacist. But in terms of like what we see of the character, it's just like a guy who's just a gangster. He yeah. does drug deals, he likes to fix boxing fights, you yeah. know, whatever. And it's like, okay. Well, if you're going to make that the point of the movie, like you know, I mean that's great. You want to make like an anti-racist movie that's uh, you know being being an ally um that's uh, you know <laughs> that's taking down white supremacists so cool you know i've watched it you know <laughs> yeah. but like um 
but like actually make it part of the movie. Like I don't, I don't understand why they've just thrown it in here because it's like, oh, it, it's like it's just like a kind of weird thinking of like, oh, what do we know about Texas? Oh, racism. Right. We'll throw right. racism in it. You know, it's like, right. and I'm not, I'm genuinely not shit on, you know, like, I know that not all Texans are racist or anything. No, I, but... I'm perfectly aware. But, like, you know, it's just like, it seems like they're just playing to a stereotype of, like, oh, of course there's going to be, yeah, the gangster's also going to be a white supremacist because it's set in yeah. Texas. It just feels like it's just, they're just throwing it out there for, like, a stereotypical thing. Yeah, I think, again, I think this might have been the unevenness from Seagal, like, because you talked about how this is a trope that sort of comes up in his movies. I think he wrote it into this movie and it and it it, it made the film uneven um, as a result. I think he just sort of stuck this in there. I think if this had been one of his big budget productions, the movie probably would have been two hours. And I mean, cause you actually think about a movie called um, the, the Patriot that he did um, in, in the mid 90s, his first direct video movie that um, he kind of try to strike out on his own. That one did involve white supremacists um, who who were a separatist group. So I think he may have wanted to try to go there, but he just, you know, the movie, you know, they wanted to keep it scant and it was like, well, I need more scenes where I'm I'm playing lovely uncle, you know, that's not related to this girl scenes where, you know, these touching scenes where she's telling me how she remembers me giving her some trinket from Thailand or something. And we have our touching moments together where we're almost making a love connection, but we're not. He he wanted more of those scenes instead of scenes of the the main bad guy maybe like talking about his white supremacy supremacist yeah. ideas and maybe indoctrinating his his followers or that kind of thing. Yeah, which in the right hands would have been very uh, would have been a very interesting movie. Unfortunately, it was not in the right hands. Right. Um, so so I would yes, uh, yeah. we've kind of given our opinion on this movie. It's kind of of middling. Don't necessarily, uh, you know, go out your way to seek it out. But, you know, if you do stumble across it, it's a perfectly fine way um, to spend 90 minutes if you're into, you know, Seagal action. Um, You know, definitely go and check out out for a kill because it's hilarious. Do not check out. Don't bother with the Patriot. If you're an action fan, don't bother with the Patriot. It is, uh, it's an incredibly dry drama that has barely any action in it and um because it relies on seagal's acting a film nothing (laughs) you know films just shouldn't do that um you know it's it's just it's hard it's hard to get through um we reviewed it in all 90s action all the time um i've watched it twice in my life um which is this is hard and um it's it's a lot of just like seagal looking through a microscope in a lab on a loop yeah. and it goes on for what seems like forever but i think it's only 90 minutes long um. <laughs> it's not a long one it, the, the one thing that it had going for it at least that i thought was the, the nice backdrop of montana you get these really nice mountainscapes there but it, it i mean it has the distinction of being his first direct to video movie um but then what's interesting right is he has exit wounds three years later and exit wounds is like this rebound for him where he suddenly finds box office success again tries to recapture it with half past dead doesn't work and then where we he where we find him here in 09 he's sufficiently direct to video at this point he's you know he gets a, a scene and and um he gets a small part in machete but um yeah, I think you're right about the Patriot. I think it's you know it it has that distinction of being his first direct-to-video movie, but it doesn't have the the the, the wild goofiness 
it, it, there is a wild, goofy aspect to it, but it doesn't play out the way that like it does like an Out for a Kill or something like that. The only good thing I will say about um, The Patriot is that LQ Jones is yes. fun in the movie. He is yes. by far the best thing in the movie. Sadly, he's not in the whole movie. Uh, yeah. But like anytime he's on screen, uh, the film is much, much more fun. Yes, so, yes, L- LQ Jones, it just, if you're going to watch it, you know, just, uh, yeah, you've just got LQ Jones, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, and LQ Jones a lot of times plays bad guys, and so you get to see him as a good guy here, which is more fun as well. I, I agree with you there. I think um, I love him in Casino. Um, I love the, that part he plays there. And actually, I, my, my wife, again, watching the Retro Channel, he was on a, a Walton's episode, and I was like, oh, that's LQ Jones. And she was like, what? And of course, she, she's usually telling me something else while these shows are on in the room, and my attention just drifts to what's on the TV. And so she was telling me something else, and I was like, oh, that's LQ Jones. And she was like, I was talking about, you know, it's like, so, um, yeah, so I, my mind kind of drifts if I see LQ Jones on the screen, kind of like what you're talking about. Though. Yeah, he's, he's going to pull my attention. Yeah. Well, I, I got I got to say that the last time I was on the podcast, we, we did talk about uh, the World Cup for uh, quite a long time. And uh, I don't know, maybe your listeners didn't think they got enough bang for their buck. And um, we we did talk about some other stuff, including some random beer chat at the start of the episode. But, I mean, I feel like we did review The Keeper and we gave mini reviews for about six other Seagal movies. So, yes. like, I feel I feel like the, we gave we gave value for money, definitely, this time. Yeah. I totally agree. <laughs> I think it, at the very least we gave people a good watch list if they haven't gotten into a lot of direct-to-video Seagal, for sure. But, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, Scott, if you want, as we're wrapping up here, um, uh, anything you want to plug or tell people where they can find you? Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, my, 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 my first podcast, the one that I do myself is called new horror express. Um, it can be found kind of wherever you find podcasts, Apple podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, you know, some of the smaller ones, Castbox, you know, whatever. Um, uh, yeah, anywhere. Um, and also you can find that on my website, newhorrorexpress.com. Um, basically, the the that podcast is primarily uh, an interview podcast where I interview horror movie directors, actors, screenwriters. Um, I even uh, talked to like a horror film festival film festival director uh, once. Um, all, all sorts of people who are are working in a kind of present day uh, horror. Um, it's it's very much a kind of twentieth. 21st century uh, focused um so like yeah that's that's that one that comes out uh, fortnightly usually um and the other one is all 90s action all the time uh, which is uh is kind of gone through a little bit of a format change um it started off that we looked at like a different action star and their output during the 90s so we did different seasons and so the original four seasons we did Seagal uh, we did uh, Stallone we did Kurt Russell and we did Val Kilmer Um, we've kind of changed the format now so um, going from from this year forward it's going to be a monthly podcast and we're going to look at the kind of films of 30 years previous so uh, for this year of 2023 we will be looking at films that came out in 1993 
um, and and we'll be doing that uh, kind of uh, each month. We've you know we've released the the first two episodes already, which are um, I'm just trying to remember now. It's it's only just happened. Uh, we did a city hunter in uh, oh no actually uh, the the, the the second episode actually doesn't come out uh, until the uh, ne- next week, um, or I think around the same time this episode might come out. Uh, so our, our first episode in January was City Hunter. Um, we've got an episode coming out very soon um, on American Yakuza. Uh, and then, yeah, we were looking at other 1993 uh, films. And you can find that on uh, Anchor, and you again wherever you find podcasts and also uh, on the last of the action heroes uh, network and yeah i think that's all the plugs i can think of all right excellent yeah yeah i know for me because I, I do you know i've got an iphone so i just subscribe to everything on itunes and it's great because when, when you subscribe to a podcast now with, with i've got a, a nicer iphone now than i used to have it gives, it actually gives me notification when the new episode comes up so i'm like oh there it is the, the new uh, all '90s action or the new new horror express. So that's a great way. To, yeah, definitely people should check those out. I, I I was on with City Hunter with you, and it was a lot of fun. I think looking back at movies that way, I think you know we just did a movie from '09. Actually, it's interesting. Both times we've been on, we've done a, a movie from '09, and there is some bit of past there, but it's it's much more fun to kind of go back 30 years and and talk about you know some of the differences uh, in in how how films were 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 made, but also culturally how how things were different then. Yeah, we we talk a lot about that um, in in the episodes of like you know the kind of cultural differences and, and what was seen as appropriate in the nineties and what's not seen as appropriate now and that kind of thing. We um you know in, in case that is off putting to some people, we don't get too far into the uh, you know into the long grass in, in that area. We, we do mainly focus on on the film, but I, we generally, me and my co-host generally think it's it's important to give that kind of uh, cultural placement um, uh, as well, and kind of talk about uh, some of the elements that might not fly now or, or, or whatever, because um, we we think that kind of leads to interesting conversation. Yeah, for sure. And even like when we talked to, when I was on your podcast and we talked about Batman Returns, it was interesting to talk about the comic book movie industry as it was at that time versus what it is now. And, you know, you, you don't really think about it. You, you think about what you're experiencing now as this is how it is. But, mm-hmm. you know, comic book movies were treated so differently back then. So even that was like a really cool conversation that we we kind of were talking about there and sort of what what people expected from a, a comic book movie in, 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 at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like I, I think it can. You know, we talk about that sort of stuff. That's kind of lighter, lighter contra- cultural context stuff as well. Um, so, so like you say, uh, comic book movies in the early nineties, studios didn't really know what to do with them. It was a very nascent thing. You know, it wasn't the kind of predominant uh, form of of of. of film entertainment that you were getting uh, in the cinema and it was kind of seen as like it's very looked down upon in, in yeah. a way that it's not now and again you know it's interesting to look at these cultural differences you know when i was growing up in the 90s if you were a comic book nerd you were an outsider right. now if you're into comic books you're in the mainstream you know like right. it's it's very you know the way it was looked upon is just completely different and for people 
who are basically for people who are older than 30 is very confusing. Like, (laughs) you know, you were picked on for being the kid in the corner reading the Spider-Man comic in the 90s. You know, like now nobody cares. Like everybody's yeah. like, "Oh, you're reading," you know, because Spider-Man's everywhere. You know, like yes. who doesn't love Spider-Man? You know, like, but it was very different. It was very different in the '90s. <laughs> so yeah, we talk about that kind of stuff as well, of being like, you know, just being like, yes, cultural attitudes to things have changed in many, many regards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It's a really interesting thing, and so yeah, definitely people should check those those out. I think they're. Uh, I, I definitely enjoy listening, and of course, I've, I've enjoyed being on as well. It's, it was it was fun to be able to chat. But um, yeah, as we're kind of wrapping this one up, Scott, thank you again for coming on. This was a really fun conversation. I think you know, with Seagal, he's always a good second uh, topic after after uh, Lundgren when you're on for on for the second time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm really glad you you had me back on. Um, this has been a great conversation. I've had a lot of fun chatting to you. And yeah, if you if you ever want me back on again, I'm I'm usually willing to talk about just about anything. <laughs> well, we've got plenty of other action stars from here that we've got. So and there's plenty of movies out there too. So we we got plenty of topics. So we'll definitely we'll definitely uh, reconnect again. But yeah, thank, thanks again, Scott, for coming on, and thank you everyone for listening. And um, yeah, we'll be back soon. Bye, everyone. Yeah.